So welcome back. I am Chris Funderberg. This is the Pink Smoke podcast. This is the second episode in our series on Errol Morris's, uh, you always hear words, seminal, groundbreaking TV series. It's a TV series he did of documentaries that are similar to his feature films. I'm joined by Martin Kessler. Uh, how are you doing, Martin? Good to be back. Thanks for having me. <laughs> And uh, what are we talking about today? Which which batch of episodes do we got to dig into? Okay, we got The Killer Inside Me. We got The Stalker. We got The Parrot. Uh, In the Kingdom of the Unabomber. The Only Truth. And I think that's it for that what is we're going to talk about. That's plenty. Yeah. That's a big chunk and of this episodes. This is an episode called Crime Adjacent Stories. Uh, this is this is his episodes that are on uh, crime, but the people he interviews and the stories he tells are not criminals. They're people whose lives are somehow steeped entirely in crime, but they themselves are not criminals, right? So with The Killer Inside Me, you have Sandra London, who married a serial killer and dated a serial killer when she was a teenager. With the stalker, you have Bill Kinsley, who was the manager who was blamed for the first uh, major postal shooting. Uh, the Royal Oak postal shooting by Tom McElvain came in and shot up a post office. This is where the phrase going postal comes from. You have Gary Greenberg, who was trying to, uh, a psychologist who was trying to situate himself to write a book about the Unabomber. So he's kind of uh, somebody who was trying to suck up to Ted Kaczynski. You have The Only Truth, which is about a, a, a New York City lawyer named Murray Richmond who gets heavily involved with, with the, the mafia. He's sort of a mob lawyer. And then when it changes, he becomes a, a like a law. He's like the lawyer for Shine in the uh, 90s after he shoots up the nightclub. And then the last one we have is The Parrot, which is um, a different episode from all the other episodes in the series in that every other episode interviews one person and this this episode is more put together like a dateline episode where a bunch of people are interviewed because the key subject is a parrot that was a witness to a murder that is in parrot witness protection so the parrot can't be interviewed for the show you just have to have other people uh going going through it they, they um, don't want to have those little concrete shoes put on that parrot <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> Um, so let's, let's start with the killer inside me. This is the one about Sandra London. Um, and well, actually let's step back before we get into it. The reason we bunched all of these episodes together, what, what's the reason in your mind? Like, what do these have in common? Like sort of what's the idea here? The idea with bunching these episodes together, um, well, like you said, it's people who are, peripheral to crime they're they're not criminals but they're sort of somehow attached to it and i think it's interesting knowing errol morris's background where he was interviewing serial killers and i feel like you know in a way he, he belongs in this group of people actually if you <laughs> take them all together like people who are not criminals but who these are self-portraits in a way yeah maybe uh maybe all art is self-portrait who knows <laughs> but um it's interesting to see him coming from that perspective and interviewing people who are in some way on the same page as him uh, or a reflection of, of his own kind of interests. But like, do you think Errol Morris is necessarily as somebody who interviewed serial killers and got friendly with Ed Gein and 
people like that, uh, do you think he's somehow different than what uh, Sandra London is doing? Or do you think he's like, well, you know, I did a thing, but ooh, that's crazy. Like, <laughs> I'm not I, sure I what his uh, perspective in, is on this. In the question of borders, I think he's interested yes. in the question of what causes crime, what is crime. Uh, and frequently in these this batch of five films, the questions he's asking is what separates this person from a criminal? What's what's the border between being a criminal and being a conspirator, being a co-conspirator? You know, what's what's the border between being part of an apparatus that promotes and supports these evil people and being an evil person yourself. And I think that he's very much interested his whole career in tabloid journalism. He clearly likes tabloid journalism. He clearly has an enthusiasm for it. And I think these films are, are prescient uh, as far as, you know, the, the true crime boom that's definitely... I'm not sure there's more true crime stuff. True crime has always been popular. You know, it's sort of the cliche for why true crime now? And it's, well, it's always been popular, but, but there's definitely been some weird mainstreaming of it with podcasts where it went from something that you were sort of, I remember having like the A to Z of serial killers, encyclopedia of serial killers on my bookshelf and being like embarrassed when people would be like, what is this? Like well, being now like the biggest podcast stuff. of all time is uh, serial. Yeah. Which is in some ways like a, a shoddy version of an Errol Morris kind of thing where it's like, <laughs> let's dig in like thin blue line and oh shit, we don't know what we're doing. Ah, we're out of here. <laughs> like, yeah. just g g cut and run. <laughs> Who that's, cares about the responsibility? Let's let, different topic next season. Different topic. It's so that thing is so shoddy. And in fact, I wrote about the website. Errol Morris wrote a book uh, called Wilderness of Era that's on Jeffrey McDonald, the infamous Green Beret murders from the 70s, where a doctor claimed that a group of hippies had come in chanting, acid is groovy, kill the pigs, and murdered his five-year-old and two-year-old daughter and wife, right? He obviously committed these murders. Errol Morse wants to prove that he didn't. He does a very bad job. I wrote extensively about this, this book, but I talk about serial in that piece, where serial is the same, um, has the same sort of problems of wilderness of error as that, you know, uh, lack of specificity, not understanding of how evidence actually works, um, being able to prove that it's an unjust and different, frequently corrupt system is very different than proving somebody's innocence, right? And one of the things about the thin blue line is it proves that uh, Errol Morris's actually seminal documentary proves that Randall Dale Adams, who's falsely convicted of a, a Dallas, murder of a Dallas police officer, he is faced by an intransigent, deeply corrupt, indifferent, self-satisfied, cruel legal system. But that's not what gets him unconvicted of the crime. That's not what gets him released from prison, right? Errol Morse compiles evidence that allows him to be released, including a witness going on the record revealing that she perjured herself, the key witness that sort of led to his thing. And he assembles a timeline that shows that the police timeline is all screwed up. That's like verifiable timeline that he goes through and everybody's testimony is he did X, Y, and Z. And he goes through and proves that, well, if he was doing X, Y, and Z and the police even agree he was doing X, Y, and Z, then he was at the drive-in movie theater at this time, not three hours later, you know, that kind of thing. And, you know, Serial doesn't doesn't do all that. Serial, like, uh, thin blue line. It sort of stumbled into it. I, it just, I think well, it just uh, goes like, aren't the police fucked up and terrible here? And it's like, yes, but that's different than this guy being innocent. And subsequent investigations, I think, have done a better job of, of 
proving yeah, his there was existence. an HBO um, show called yeah. um, I think like that the some, the something of Adnan Saeed. Yeah. I forget like yeah. if it's the, the innocence of Adnan Saeed, the yeah. crimes of Adnan Saeed, uh, something like that. But like there was a Reddit which was a big deal where people were kind of. Uh, examining this this case long yeah. after the podcast itself but i would say that it. that podcast has a real problem which errol morse does not suffer from of saying there are some people who are criminals who do really bad things and sort of i think it overlooks not to get too deep into serial a really obvious solution of what happened in the case you know uh because it just it can't conceive of anybody being a criminal it just has a hard time understanding well, that there are bad yeah, I mean, people who commit crimes who need to be locked away forever it's you know? it's like um if you're trying to structure a narrative about how the justice system is corrupt or unfair it helps if you have somebody who's wrongfully convicted it's hard to look at somebody who is like oh man the justice system really railroaded them and we're really unfair and also he's probably guilty <laughs> you know i mean like i i feel like if you really wanted to take it seriously, you could examine somebody who like, yeah, probably committed the crimes, but also, you know, police were coming to sloppy, well, that's, or, you know, let's, let's get into some of these films. One of the films yes. that I think is most that struck me, that was never one of my favorite episodes of the series that now strikes me as more interesting is the stalker. Wait, okay. let's back up. People don't know Errol Morris's history. Let me just go through Errol Morris's history real quick. He's a graduate student at Princeton. He gets kicked out. He goes to UC Berkeley. He's writing a thesis on the insanity defense. So he decides that he needs to spend time around serial killers who have used the insanity defense. So he goes to Wisconsin with Werner Herzog to interview Ed Gein. He goes to um, to upstate uh, California to are very close, not even that far from where he is to talk to Ed Kemper. He gets very involved in serial killers. He makes Gates of Heaven and Vernon, Florida. Uh, both of these movies are cult hits but don't do anything for his career don't do anything for him financially and he moves to new york and he's working in manhattan for a um i think the guy's name is jimmy mintz but a very very famous private detective and but it's a private detective who investigates financial crimes and it turns out errol morse is very good at going through details of things through going through reams and reams of paper and finding inconsistencies and and doing that kind of stuff. So he works for years as a private detective, sort of circuitously through his work as a private detective. He gets um, the opportunity to interview this guy, Dr. Grigson, who's known as Dr. Death. And what Dr. To be confused with Mr. Death. Mr. Death, yes, completely <laughs> separate guy. Uh, and what Dr. Death is used for is in Texas, he's the guy they call in, the prosecution calls in to be an expert witness to say this person is a danger to society if we don't put them to death they will go out and reoffend and he says this about everybody and he gives people like a five minute test that's like a word association and identify the relationships between these these shapes like a lot of the, the people who are condemned by him testify to like barely having a memory of him and not understanding like what a crucial meeting it is because it's so brief and inconsequential compared to the other psychiatric evaluations they get and process they've been through that it's just like this guy who and he always condemns them everybody he interviews definitely is going to reoffend and definitely is a danger and dr grigson encouraged him to talk to some of the people 
that had been put on death row that he had put away essentially and one of them was randall dale adams the one that errol morse's movie the thin blue line proves did not murder the police officer right and errol morris talks about meeting randall dale adams and without any proof without knowing anything about the case just going this guy didn't do it this this guy didn't didn't do this thing and i have no proof and i have no reason i think that but being around him five minutes i just feel like he didn't do this and i think serial has a similar thing where she just met this guy and is like well he didn't do this you know in the case of the thin blue line it worked out where he really didn't do it but that i think that feeling is something that sort of plagues Errol Morris for the rest of his life is why did I trust that feeling and how real is that feeling of who's crazy and who's not crazy? It is what I did different than what Oliver Sacks did with Temple Grandin, which we discussed on the last episode of him just sort of speculating about her inner life in a way that's almost wildly irresponsible. Is that what I, Errol Morris, did? You know, And I think that he does get really concerned with my life has been defined now by this thing of identifying this person's inner life correctly. How do people actually identify anybody's inner life, especially a criminal inner life? And so that's what these films are, are all about, I think. And also he does, and he doesn't shy away from it. He has an attraction to lurid tabloid stuff the way we all do, is that these are interesting stories because they're shocking stories and they're appalling stories and they're weird stories. And that's the reason we like them. You know, the Murray Richmond and the only truth talking about Billy No Brains, like he's describing this absolutely awful person, but it's this really lurid, entertaining tale. You know, it's this really irresistible story of this awful, vile person. And I think that he's also interested in in that, in that sort of line between entertainment, not entertainment. So when we talk about- Tabloid is a film that he made that uh, digs quite a bit into that. Yeah. But when he talks about Sandra London, who's the woman who dated uh, Gerald Schaefer, a really vile serial killer when they were teenagers, and then married Danny Rollins when he was in prison, she writes books for both of them, right? In the case of Gerald Schaefer, uh, and this was a book that I had in high school, it's called Killer Fiction, where Gerald Schaefer sort of lightly fictionalized all of these murders he hadn't been convicted of, right? He's only convicted of two murders, and then he's suspected of a lot more. Uh, and I think he's also convicted of two of an assault where the two women lived, where he did a similar thing to the murder, which essentially handcuffed them to trees in the woods and put nooses around their neck. And sort of as they lose their strength, they choke themselves to death. Like they have to stand on tippy toes. And as the water rises and stuff, really horrible, really one of the absolute worst. Right. And so she literally fictionalizes for him these stories because she's a writer. She writes computer manuals. They happen to date when they were in high school, right? She goes back to him after he's convicted and says, let's write a book together. So it's a literal fictionalization of his accounts and that turning it into quote unquote stories and entertainment. Then with Danny Rollins, she's commissioned to write a book on him. And I don't know if she ever writes the book on him. I don't know. She must. She's such a like... And careerist uh, that she she must write a book about the relationship i don't know if it was the book but I, I think maybe she had a website going where there was writing either about danny rawlings or it's uh his right i forget now what what the detail was that i i did look up uh what she was up to after but 
what's interesting that comes across in this uh, documentary is her her association not with one but with two incredibly awful people yeah uh, for know, people who don't know danny rollins but, uh, he's the gainesville ripper he's the guy who would cut off women's heads and sort of pose them co-ed's heads and pose them around the room he was a real drifter he lived in the woods he's and also if you don't know he's one of the true pathetic dorks of serial killing history he's one of those guys he was a wannabe country music singer and just like and instantly she, she unlikable falls in guy. love with him she yeah. she completely falls head over heels for this guy there's one uh clip they show from i guess some kind of legal proceeding where he's like serenading her it's it's his sen- it's his sentencing hearing it's his sentencing, it's his sentencing and- hearing in which he's supposed to be making the case to not be put on death row and instead he proposes marriage to her and sings her a song and the reason he does that is because in its court it's legally binding because there's a judge there that they're actually legally married if he does it into the record it's a loophole that's why he's doing that and he's singing this terrible song he wrote to her and she's standing there beaming with she, she's and, and what's just happening look on her face like she's just like gaga in love with him like but they don't show in the film what's happened before is like the families of the murdered women have given testimony like right before this of why he needs to be put to death and stuff like that's what's happening in the sentencing hearing so it's i mean errol morris straight out asks her like what's the what's the fast like why fall in love with the serial killer and she's like oh that's a that's a stupid question you can do better than that and he's like oh why why fall in love with him and she she goes on all these reasons which seem to like dance around the the really kind of like elephant in the room of this guy being a serial killer um when she's talking about the his artwork she said like the little angel that he drew you know this like i could see the pure innocent child inside him and like she's just going on and on about like all the reasons that she loves this guy but like it all seems completely phony it all seems delusional is what it it seems like like. she's dancing around the real reason is that like oh yeah i'm really attracted to this serial killer like yeah specifically that he's a serial killer you know when she's talking about this fantasy of the the boogeyman riding to her home at night and she can get Mm -hmm. out and go on his horse and they ride off for forever like it's this you get the sense that she's fulfilling some kind of fantasy. Um, and I mean, she, she even uses the phrase, like, I never wanted to be a repeatable person, but yeah. like you're somebody who dated a serial killer twice, like two, yeah. two different serial, serial killers. Like that's, that's far more repeatable than most people will ever be in their behavior. It's interesting um, too. It reminds me the two of the episodes we talked two of the episodes we talked about last podcast episode with both, stairway to heaven and mr personality mr personality the expert on evil who's trying to identify psychopathy he takes it he does a little aside about women who marry serial killers and he sort of has like some clear compunction or misunderstanding about which zone to put them in and what it means to be a woman who's in love with serial killers and that it's a phenomenon that it's it's a well-documented phenomenon that people like richard ramirez and john wayne gacy get marriage proposals constantly in prison and that they become like sexual celebrities to a certain kind of woman. And, you know, Michael Stone is trying to identify what, what is the evil 
here? Like what, what, where on my scale of evil does this go? And it's very hard to say because she, Sandra London frames everything in terms of empathy. She, there's this crazy video of her like dressed in like, Oh, which is makeup, makeup on with, and she's, yeah, and she's outside and she's singing her little song about like, doesn't putting serial killers to death, make killers of us all. It's a poem and it's terrible, terrible, terrible. Uh, but she frames everything in terms of like, I can see the innocent child inside of Danny Rollins. I can, you know, uh, see the humanity inside of it. She frames everything in terms of empathy. But I, but she seems like somebody in which the mechanism for empathy inside of her is completely shattered and broken. It's completely yeah. dysfunctional in comparison to Temple Grandin who, when you watch her talk about it, she has so much empathy for the cows that she's designing these slaughterhouses for. It's such an interesting contrast. I don't well, think I mean, Temple the, Grandin- The obvious thing is that like, if Sandra London's coming from a place of empathy, you don't see any empathy for the people that these serial killers killed really. Like it's it's sort of glossed over as she- she's like christian langan in that she has these moments where she knows the appropriate way to talk about them horrible crime terrible thing he did completely hair raising stomach churning she has these kind of phrases when she's talking about the crimes and sort of looks at them bluntly and knows the right things to say but it feels fake again it's like but it's also like i don't know how much of that's a response to dating schaefer like she's talking about making love to this guy in a graveyard and his anger over seeing a woman undress and oh i could kill her and then she's like i didn't see any of the warning signs you know like what what would that do to somebody if you found out like oh you know they were actually a serial killer the whole time this guy who told me his biggest sexual fantasies are to murder women actually ended up murdering women as part of his sexual fantasies so i don't know how much like her later yeah like how much of that is a response to what happened with that relationship but yeah but she's also say. yeah one of errol morse's big themes is self-deception and you do look at her and you go how much she is just living inside of self-deception but she's profiting from it too she built her career around it at what point does this become regular deception you know what i mean at what point does this become regular again it's like the christian langan question of how much does he believe this bullshit how much has he been trained to say the right things and understand and intuit what the right things are. Uh, And so they're saying them and how much do they believe any of this? How complicated of a figure is she actually is the open question of it. Do you think that she like, what do you think's happening inside of her? Do you think that she in her private moments is like, Oh my God, I am so fucking horny for murder. This is awesome that I get to hang out with the murderer. Or do you think it never forms that coherent of a thought inside of her? Do you think that she believes her, the bullshit in some way? Like, I, that- I think she's going to believe it to some degree. I mean, like the, the way she's gushing about like him serenading her. And like, I think I would be shocked if she intellectualizes it for herself as much because when you start to like put it into words that like oh i'm so horny for the serial killer it starts to maybe it destroys the fantasy i don't know like it starts to fall (laughs) apart and starts to like oh wait this is crazy you know if you start to intellectualize your own fantasies often like that's when they go to die um you know you start like i mean um you can look at something more harmless like um 
you know, there, there are all these like fetishes and things that are very like ornate. And then like the second you try to like classify them and intellectualize it for yourself, it like takes all the allure off of it. So I, I would be shocked if she's in her internal monologue or wherever is saying like, oh yeah, this is so hot. I get to, I get to marry a serial killer. Like, I, I don't know if it's necessarily phrased like that for her. I, I do think like there probably is some element of, of delusion or, you know, this like winding path to get to that place that, you know, maybe there's a core of this attraction to somebody who can kill people who's powerful like that. And, you know, romanticizing this idea of like some kind of yeah, they're such weird like quality even it's, talk about gerald schaefer and danny rollins i know i know I, but like, I, i'm saying like as a fantasy like i <laughs> i realize this is you know crazy town but yeah yeah that's yeah that's but my I, also, I, I watch her and i think like god there were especially when i was young there were like two or three women i dated or had relationships with that were deeply fucked up people like almost impossibly fucked up people when i look back and were engaged in behaviors that were immoral that were overtly immoral that i knew were wrong at the time and behaviors that were both self-destructive and destructive you know some people it was more inwardly directed and engaged in more in, in a moral behavior that was inwardly directed some more outwardly but i look back and i'm like what did i think of being wrapped up with people who were like genuinely bad human beings. My first serious girlfriend after college who I was with like almost three years, I look back and I'm like, that was a bad human being. That wasn't just a bad relationship. Like I was with somebody who was like a really bad person. But was you know? that from, from being young and having like a lack of judgment developed? Or was that like, I'm really attracted to this bad person? No, for, like, me, for me, it unquestionably was, is there are damaged unhappy women that really i'm attracted to and i'm going to be the one non-fucked up thing in their life i'm going to be the non-fucked up thing and everything else is fucked up and i'm going to be the anchor in the stone of course anybody who thinks that is just another fucked up thing in this person's life i was completely fucked up as a kid too i don't look back and i'm like i was this good person who you know, got sucked into it. It's like, I was swirling the drain too, you know, like I was involved in all kinds of, of, of bad behaviors, but definitely that was my thought process. So when I look at her, I'm like, does she not, does she just literally not understand what's happening here? Does she literally, and that's why she doesn't want to address the question of why serial killers, yeah. because it's to, if you had said to me when I was young, why are you dating these kind of women, I would have said, well, I like this woman and this woman and this individual. It's not some type. Now I look back and of course it's a type. And now I have a different type that I think is much healthier for me and much happier and leads to, to better things. And like my checklist is more like can't suffer from chronic depression. You know, like that's got to be on the checklist, you know, those kind of things that definitely uh, attracted me before, um, you know, can't. <laughs> can't be violent can't be a drug addict you know these kind of things can't be uh deceptive and manipulative you know the these kind of stuff has got to be on the checklist and the checklist for myself part of that's the checklist for myself as well is like for me to be a good person i got to be around people who are like aspirational for me in some way you know i think um, like the, the the whole idea of self-delusion it's like you don't know that you're deluding yourself if you're really deluding yourself. Yeah. So it's, it's impossible to say, like, I mean, 
Well, it's interesting because Morris, you know, the Dunning-Kruger effect, which everybody has heard about by now, Morris popularized it. He wrote about it in a New York Times article. And after that, that's when you start seeing it getting mentioned. And it's interesting because it gets boiled down to stupid people don't know they're stupid, right, is what it gets boiled down to. But that's not actually what this test proved. What the test proved was that people who take a test, right, if they really are knowledgeable about the material, right? They will think they did worse on the test than people who don't really know the material. The people who don't really know the material will think they did better than they did. The people who really know the material will think they did worse than what they did. So if you don't know the material, you'll think, I probably got to be on that, but you got to see. If you really know the material, you'll think, oh my God, I botched that. But you got, you know, a 98, not a, you know, not a 90 or whatever it is. And that's what this test proved is that essentially having more knowledge about things can um, can lead to confusion and a lack of self-awareness. One of the other things the test did, and I'm, I wonder if this will work on you, Martin, which is the bigger city, San Diego or Austin, which has a bigger population? Quicker bigger population? Yeah. San Diego or Austin? I'd guess San Diego. I don't really know. Yeah. You had to think about it a little bit. For yes. Americans they really him and haw over it, right? Because they know Austin's an up and coming city. They know it's got an influx of population. They know that San Diego has not, you know, uh, has stayed sort of steady, blah, blah, blah. If you ask somebody, your knowledge makes you think about it. If you ask somebody from Japan, which is a bigger city, San Diego or Austin, they say San Diego a hundred times out of a hundred because they've never fucking heard of Austin, Right. It's like, what's a bigger city, Nagoya or Osaka? Right? You know the answer to that well, it's... instantly. Yep. Osaka. So. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, um... uh, but, but again, it's, it's uh, if they're in Japan, they might have to think about it more, you know? Sure. Is what this test showed. But that's one of the things. It's not, it's also, by the way, it's not by much, Martin. It's only about a 300,000 person difference between those two cities, right? Osaka is, is I think, 2.6 and, and Nagoya is 2.3. As an American, every American goes Osaka because they've heard of it and they haven't heard of Nagoya. Japanese people think about it more. So there's the, that's part of what the Dunning-Kruger test proved is that having knowledge can, can lead to self-deception and confusion and and not make your answers more refined. You know, this might have been something to talk about a little bit with one in a million trillion, sure. where Rick Rosner is sort of grinds his mind down yeah. over this answer. That's clearly a trick question that if you don't know much, you're going to know it's not. Well, um, I mean, this comes up even in uh, Morse's political films like Fog of War or The uh, Unknown Known, where there's this almost surplus of information to the point where you're you're completely wrong about something, but you feel like, you know, <laughs> Yes, uh, I, I, I think that Death. was Donald Rumsfeld yeah. or Mr. Death. Also, where there's this illusion of expertise. To be an expert. Yeah. Yes, you know, I feel like I'm the expert. They've assigned me this position to be the the expert, the judge on this. I must know what I'm doing right. <laughs> like, yes. You know, these don't really stop and say like, "Oh, I, I actually have no clue what I'm doing." Yeah. Or my expertise allows me to draw wrong conclusions in a sophisticated yes. way, like having a knowledge of Austin versus San Diego. You might talk yourself into Austin, you know, 
by having more knowledge. You might draw a wrong conclusion by having more knowledge about the subject. Yes. It's a, it's, it's a funny thing. Sometimes you pick Kent Mandu as your answer because you just yeah. overthink it maybe. <laughs> um, so it's... It is a it is a it is a funny thing that way where um, when you think about the Dunning Kruger effect in the context of something like the killer inside me, mm-hmm. where you sort of go, does she have so much knowledge about serial murder and this life and this life of crime that she's lost her ability to see it clearly? You know, is that what's happening here is that she's so steeped in this that she can't see to outsiders how overtly nuts and grotesque everything she's doing is. Like that video where she's doing the poem, like, how does she think this will be received by anybody? Why would she give that to Morris? I, Why I would she let like, him chew it? But it like, reminds not, me of Not a resentful of, of Morris necessarily, but I'm like, you know what you're doing when you put this in the documentary. Like, there's no coming back from your your perspective on this woman once you see that video. <laughs> it's like, oh, she's nuts. But um, yeah. Yeah, but she's nuts. But his theme is she's nuts. And how does she not know she's nuts? You know, and that's again, he talks about with Mr. Death, how Fred Leuchter agreed to just do whatever he asked. And they shot all that stuff where there's Leuchter holding the Van Graaff generator, which shoots the giant arc of sparks between it. And um, and he said, Fred never asked why I had him do that and how the footage was going to be used. He just went over and stood and did it. You know, and I think that's a lot of people is, don't you understand this is going to be used somehow? I mean, what, what's really interesting to me is when you interview people who are like completely nuts and then you present the footage back to them showing how exactly nuts they are. And they're like, yeah, that's exactly what I think. That's great. Like, I, yeah. I think the the filmmakers who made uh, Jesus Camp talked about this where, you know, people were saying like, oh, they must have been really mad once the documentary came out and they were like, no, they thought it was great. They're like, yeah, that's exactly what we believe. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, that's, so. you know, with with Robert McNamara and Rumsfeld and yeah. Steve Bannon, he showed them cuts of what he was doing in order for them to continue working with him. And they all liked it, you know. But I think that's also part of what makes Errol Morris such a special filmmaker and such a special filmmaker is he has often decried, like, I, I don't see documentary as a form of pugilism where I'm going in and trying to score points. I'm going in and trying to genuinely understand people. And what I'm trying to show you is people's mental landscape. You know, that what documentary is, is showing people's interior lives and their mental landscape. And that stuff is really, really weird. If you open people up, there's really, really weird stuff inside of them. Landscapes that are in there are very, very strange. And I'm not trying to like score points and get, you know, he makes fun of because yeah. it happened both with uh, with Fog of War. For some reason, it didn't happen with uh, Unknown Known. Uh, but Fog of War and American Carnage both came at moments where it was like, you didn't get this guy. You made this documentary oh, and you let Dharma, them express yeah. themselves. Same thing happened with Fog of War, though, too. You didn't nail him the way you're supposed to nail him. And Morris is like, what do you think happens if I nail him? Quote, unquote. Nothing happens. You just well, hear, you you have your own him. opinions confirmed back to you and nothing happens, right? Instead, we can reveal what's actually happening inside of these people, their thought process. We can have a greater understanding of the world by allowing themselves to express themselves clearly. And it's not about trying to knock down every point they make. In fact, the opposite. It's about trying to let them express themselves completely articulately, you know? I forget if Fog of War came out 
before or after uh, Fahrenheit 9-11, but I feel like like that's the kind of documentary that sort of won out in a way, you know, these... Uh, yeah. These advocacy docs that advocacy, nobody watches and has no uh, impact. Advocacy sort of essay type, you know, I'm, I'm going to get you documentaries. Um, yeah. I think Here, like, I'm going to point at the bad okay. person and say for two hours, they're bad over and over and over. And yes. Morris's point with the, with Steve Bannon is like, how dumb do you have to be to need yeah. that movie? What does that movie get for you? But at the same time, it's interesting. He talks about with Mr. Death when he showed the film, he showed an initial cut to Harvard students and it didn't have any of the. So what happens in that movie is Fred Leuchter, who's an expert on electric chairs, is sent by Ernest Zendel, who's a notorious Holocaust denier, to go furtively to Auschwitz and collect samples to prove that the gas chambers weren't used for gas. And he's he doesn't know what he's doing. He yeah. thinks he knows what he's doing, but he doesn't. You he know? And no it, it's idea. very I feel like it's very obvious when you watch it, but apparently the, this first cut where it's only interviews of him, uh, university students, college students were confused by the Harvard his conclusion. students were like, oh my God, he proved the Holocaust didn't happen. I'm shaken. Not, oh my God, this man's ludicrous and his science is terrible. Yeah. So he had to go and put 10 minutes back into the movie, which was essentially experts being like, this is why his science is not only bad, but ludicrously bad and just demolished yes. it. In Errol Morse's words, he had to go back into the movie and prove the sky was blue. And he always says that he hates being in the business of having to prove the sky is blue. And I think that that's a lot of what of the reaction is people watch American Dharma and are like, why didn't you prove the sky is blue? Why didn't you prove that Bannon is a dangerous, deluded hypocrite? Yeah. It's like the movie does, A, it does prove that. Like, what movie are you watching, you know? But it's more complicated than that, you know? It's a, it's a more complicated, interesting artwork than that. I remember um, there's a famous quote by Claude Lanzmann He's talking about like how if he found if he found footage of uh, the Holocaust, he would destroy it, which is like something that sounds kind of crazy. But like as time's gone on, I, I sort of understand that more and more like what he's doing with Shoah. Like, yeah, you know, his goal is not to prove that like, of course, the Holocaust happened. It's like, yeah. you know, how, how do we sort through and make sense of this? Try to anyway. Uh, it's not about it's not about proving the sky is blue, like you said. So I, I feel like that, that was something that it took me a little while to kind of fully grasp what he was saying there, but I, I think it's similar. Yeah. That reminds um, me of Morris loves Shoah and yeah. hates night and fog. He's called night and fog, his least favorite film ever made several times. And I've always found this incredibly puzzling. Like most people, I find Night and Fog very powerful and insightful and searing and good filmmaking. And I've never been exactly able to square it until just now. I think you've finally like given me the key to it that what happened at, at the concentration camps isn't a matter of the footage, you know, that it's which which obviously um uh, night and fog relies heavily on of all this footage of starving people and dead bodies and whatnot. You've so you've made something click in my head, which is that it's not just about the document of it, the documentary footage, that it's about something more complicated between those two films, that that there's a level on which Night and Fog is trying to prove culpability in some way and trying to talk about what happened in some objective 
way but that show is about the experience of it that's it's experiential uh in nature that it's existential in nature you know and i think that it's interesting that um that reminds me of is that thin blue line its tagline was one of them was an existential detective story right uh that's actually morse is really interested in that tension and that's what these films are about as well they're detective stories in some ways but they're really more about what detective stories tell us about human existence right um my question that i was going to ask uh earlier and i just ran away from it so far is what do you think the line is between entertainment and exploitation between you know these stuff being luridly entertaining and this stuff being like scientific factual knowledge we're supposed to be accumulating in some way and what do you think of errol morris's relationship is to that as somebody whose seminal career defining film is a very very entertaining movie about a cop getting killed in a wrongful murder it's tough to say i think sometimes these things like the devils are in the details how you handle it how you're responsible from moment to moment while you're making these things. Um, I mean, if it's a matter of taste, I don't think there is a line. I think it's it's uh, it, it's again like this sort of situation where the border it's um, Paraguay and Argentina. Paraguay and Argentina, exactly. So it's I don't think there's a clear delineation, and sometimes you see something that is just pure exploitation that also has maybe some nugget of real value and sometimes you have something that is uh you know a very responsible put together document that you're like oh this is entertaining or oh that's that's actually kind of an exploitative moment so i i don't think it's a clear line i think i don't know may, maybe the line is it's like the difference between uh enter you know well it's a difficult question. I, I maybe it it's is. the difference of, of making art or not. I don't know. Yeah, um, because it is when you do watch Errol Morris's stuff now, especially the parrot. Right, we'll talk yes. a little bit about the parrot. This is an episode that it feels like, and it even has Stone Phillips and Dateline. It feels like a Dateline Discovery ID regular true crime episode of something. Yep. You have the parrot. You have multiple people being interviewed. You have. You know, uh, the footage from the courtroom, you have the local beat reporter who covered it. It presents the story in a way that you would be very familiar with. And it's easy to forget that with the Thin Blue Line, um, Morris really invented the style. If he didn't invent it, he crystallized the zeitgeist, you know. Uh, he really created the the recreations, although he's quick to point out nothing that happens in thin blue line yeah they're not really information it's showing you what didn't happen which i I think is important and i i've tried to hammer this home because i've um i've I've never done recreations really in in a doc i've worked on but like i've known people who make documentaries and the idea of doing recreations is very tempting to somebody who works in documentary I, i know people who've worked in documentaries and it's like Ooh, I get to add production value to my movie or, Ooh, I get like, it makes you ask, I think, or it should make you ask, like, why does this documentary need a recreation? Why, why should this be in a film? And like, I feel like thin blue line, there's a very clear why it's showing you what didn't happen, which it visualizes these versions of the story where you're like, 
that's not right. <laughs> you know? yeah. um, but then I, I see these uh, documentaries, which sometimes it's like, ah, we just need to break up the pace of talking heads. Let's throw in some recreations. You know, it's like, oh, we can't let people get bored. It feels, I don't know, like there's not really a good reason for them to be in there. And uh, typically recreations are awful. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I enjoy like unsolved mysteries type things, but yeah. like for me, that's, it's more like entertainment than, than, uh, that reminds me, have you ever seen else, in the heat yeah. of passion? One of my favorite movie plots of all time. I don't think I have mid nineties softcore movie. It's great. The plot of it is, is there's a guy who plays a killer in a recreation on an American was most wanted type show, an actor. And he's the actor hired to play the, the killer on the, and this woman sees him and thinks he's actually the guy and enlists him to like murder her husband. Right. And he's sort of like going along with it. Like I'll have sex with this lady. Like, cause she's super hot and she thinks I'm this killer. And she's like, you know, sort of getting, pulling him into double yeah. indemnity because she misrecognizes him from America's most wanted great, great movie by the great Rodman Flinder. And uh, yes, but it's also important to remember when talking about Morrison, his style he was rebelling against what was seen as standard documentary style at yes. the time. It was the cinema verite or direct cinema, that this type of thing. Yeah, the I've seen. A, yeah. I've seen like there's a really good documentary about documentaries, which um, I think Werner Herzog's in it. Uh, one of my professors in university, uh, Manfred Becker, who's a very good documentarian, is in it. Although he wasn't the documentary teacher, he should have been, but he was the editing teacher yeah um and uh they, they talk a little bit about like morris staging things and i think maybe it's for brief history of time but like or e even before that maybe in, in some of his earlier documentaries how like oh you have all these trophies take them out show them to me and arranging yeah. shots in a way that like documentaries didn't really do even just he talks about wanting to have a huge camera setup that was a mobile so yes. the, so the people would have to be aware of it and stay in a fixed spot on gates of heaven he has a funny story where he went to make gates of heaven and he was buddies with herzog and herzog was like famously like you're never going to make a movie if you make this movie i'll eat my shoe and then for its premiere in san francisco he cooked and ate his shoe les blank made a great documentary about it Werner herzog eats his shoe uh which everybody should watch but morris herzog's like use my cameraman on gates of heaven use my buddy ed lockman my cinematographer ed lockman who lost his glasses on the rim of la souffriere right so ed lockman goes <laughs> Damn, lost it in the lava <laughs> So uh, so Ed Lockman goes to shoot Gates of Heaven and Errol Morris fires him. Yes. After like one day or two days, something yeah. like that. And Ed Lockman went on to shoot. He was Far shooting from it like heaven. a documentary. Yeah. And Ed Lockman's like, I know how to do this, I know how to shoot it. Lockman is one of the great cinematographers of all time. Yes. Shot Far From Heaven, nominated for many Academy Awards, works with Todd Haynes a lot. And um and Morris was like, no, you want to shoot this like a documentary. You're fired. And apparently they they just battled. And Ed Lockman went to Herzog and was like, he's nuts. He doesn't know how to make a documentary. He agreed to he work doing. on the day for free and he still got fired. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, oh, my God. I've, now I'm getting like flashbacks of being in university. I remember. Yeah. Th this isn't one just, of the uh, yeah. documentary I made, but I, I remember editing uh, a, a documentary that my friend was working on and the editing professor was just being like get that Errol Morris shit out of here <laughs> so yeah. like I, I think a lot of people don't like he was hated in 88 the academy yes. award people 
watched his footage and were like, we will not consider this to be yeah, nominated yeah. for best documentary. Meanwhile, it's on everybody's top 10 list because the idea was so much, this is unethical to include recreations. It was such a, a stayed, and the documentary world is still a very gatekeeper-ish well, kind it's of- It's also world. like some of the, some of the things that are framed as ethical concerns are really stylistic concerns. And I feel like there are ideas of how you should make a documentary and people are very uncomfortable. Like you can make a personal documentary, but if you make a documentary that's personal art, people get uncomfortable. They, yeah. they don't like to uh, address that. They don't like, they don't know how to talk about it. Like, oh, you are supposed to make a documentary in this way yeah, look, um, the documentary yeah. world is a very narrow world it's a very very left-wing liberal world that that thinks in very moralistic terms about its project it just is it's just what that world is 99 of the people uh who for many years it's probably changed somewhat in recent years but who thought of themselves as documentarians thought of themselves in very explicitly political terms you know certainly in the 80s when thin blue line is coming out that's that's the world of documentary and what it's supposed to do and what its some function is supposed to be. Errol Morse was very antagonistic to also early in his career, especially with Gates of Heaven and Vernon, Florida. Those were perceived as mocking their subjects, right? As being look at the freaks movies where the punchline of the joke it's is funny that that, uh, that reputation kind of chased Morris throughout most of his career, and then like you get to his most recent film, they're like, why didn't you mock your subjects? Yes. Like, Exactly. But he also always says, you know, like, what am I working on an ad campaign for humanity? What am I supposed to be making these pay-ins to the greatness of humanity? No, the proper appropriate reaction to existence is despair more than anything, you know, and I'm allowing people to speak and show their interior lives. I'm, you know, I'm not cutting around them to make them look silly. I'm leaving in the stuff they said that clearly mo they most believe in. And I think that there's uh, that sort of reputation for the kind of filmmaker he was when Thin Blue Line comes out too. He's he's this guy who's like appearing on Letterman, you know, when Gates of Heaven is is released yeah. as sort of one of Letterman's like curio freaks. He's like filling a Crispin Glover role, like a weirdo who's made a really yes. weird movie. I think uh, like I've seen a clip of this where people are, are just laughing the whole way through the, the clip of the movie and yeah. they're, yeah. And, um, and and just his explanations for why he's done things. Yes. And he is a weird guy, but that's what's, sure. what's great about him, you know? So yep. this just brings us all back to the parrot, which is Errol Morse's style has been so influential that people do Errol Morse's shtick without even realizing Yeah, it. I, I think this is very true where people are like, oh, our movie needs a recreation. They don't even know where, it, where it's coming from. It's and like- we're going to uh, have this like repetitive- low like the dun, 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 the music dun, dun, yes dun, dun, that's just philip like glass kind of score. inspired score it's it's yeah. all over the place it really is um and sort of the the jump cuts where it'll be interviewing somebody and it'll cut to black and then cut to them talking in a different part of the sentence this is all stuff morris invented for all intents and purposes i'm sure you can find earlier examples of it but like he crystallized the zeitgeist like he he invented everybody's got antecedents you know but he's yes. in, in precedence he invented this stuff he yep. really really did and so when you watch something like the parrot you're like oh this is every true crime show now 
is this. It's just like the recreations of the murders and all that. What do you think of this episode of The Parrot? I mentioned yesterday there's one person in all of these movies that I fucking hate that I cannot stand. Everybody else I'm sympathetic to or identify with in some way. And at Bridge Klausing. My favorite moment with her, again, I I think it's one of those great like Errol Moores giving a person enough rope to hang themselves with where he asks her to describe Gary and it really sounds like she's talking about herself where she said like, yeah. oh, I don't think anyone really knows him. Yeah. There's too many personalities in there. Uh, he would get the truth and stretch it out a lot or block things out or make everything crazy. Like the way she yeah. said, like it feels like, oh, you're actually talking about yourself right there. So so what the story of this show is, is yes. there's a woman, Jane Gill, who strangled to death in her home. Her parrot witness witnesses the whole thing. Her boyfriend, our former boyfriend and business partner, Gary Rasp, is put on trial for the murder, essentially, based almost exclusively on the testimony of his then fiance Annette Bridges Klausing, this woman we've just been discussing. So Jane Gill's murdered. Gary Rasp is put on trial. He's put away basically by the testimony of his fiance Annette Bridges Klausing. And Annette Bridges Klausing has just discovered he's cheating on her with like four different women when she goes to the police and gives them all of this testimony about what he supposedly said about hiring a hitman to kill her and doing it himself. And it's her testimony that puts him away. And he in fact has an alibi. This woman, Evelyn Bruce is like, he was with me that night. I can prove he was with me. That just gets ignored for some reason. Right? So this is all the setup to then the parrot, this woman who was killed in the parrot witnessed the murder, it's sold to a pet store. It's given to a pet store by the police. This woman, Victoria Witsowski, says as soon as she feeds the parrot and it gets calmed down, it starts going, Richard, no! <laughs> Richard, no! And like, do it. And it's an African gray, so it has an incredibly... Uh, wide vocal range. African greys, I think, can learn up to like 300 words. Like they're very smart. Me too, but you don't see me bragging about it. <laughs> um, but uh, but it's they're very intelligent animals. They're very emotional animals too. They bond with their owners really, really closely, right? They can go insane. There's parrot insane asylums uh, that exist where when birds have been driven insane by neglect they exhibit signs of mental illness that's comparable to human mental illness i don't know if most people know this but animals don't really show signs of mental illness a lot of the time you know not in the way that they can like exhibit specific disorders parrots can parrots can exhibit personality disorders very very intelligent animals yeah, uh, an very animals. very good at mimicking uh, so so the idea is this parrot is trying to tell them who killed Jane and that it's somebody named Richard. And in fact, she has another business partner that she owes hundreds of thousands of dollars to named Richard Mattoon. The police ignore this. They don't want to listen to the parrot. And that's what this episode is. He, he was apparently the last one who testified to see her alive. Um, that There's a lot of reason to suspect that uh Gary Rasp was wrongly convicted and the parrot is maybe the only one who could uh, clear him, but the judge doesn't want to hear from a parrot. You can't put a parrot on the stand. You know, it's not like, it's not like you can take the testimony of a parrot and know exactly what's going on. And I feel like there's some confusion thrown in there when Annette Bridge Klausing is like, well, you know, the former owners probably had a kid named Richard and the parrots just copying that. And like, you know, I feel like 
Yeah. If anything, There's... the parrot should have been saying, no, no, Gary. Uh, the way she talks is so infantile. I just despise her. I had a big heart in this whole trial. I was the key witness. I was the one who put him behind bars. She talks like this about everything. She's just so detestable. I don't know if it was love or infatuation or lust. You know, and just like the story, she tells the story at one point about like Gary came after me with a knife and I kept punching him in the head until until he was knocked out. And then I ran and got the police. It's like, who believes this woman? How can anybody believe this? You know, it's one of the and it, again, it reminds me of Thin Blue Line where he hears Randall Dale Adams talk for two seconds and is like, he's innocent. You hear this woman talk for two seconds and you're like, she's a liar. She's yeah. just a liar. I don't know. I mean, what that feels like is. one of the reasons why this episode is structured differently. Like the parrot can't speak for itself, really. I mean, it yeah. can, but in a parrot way. Um, so you do need these other perspectives on it. And I feel like if you had just sat down in that bridge class thing, like you could probably tell like, okay, maybe she's full of it, but like, it doesn't really give you a full picture. And I feel like yeah. this episode to tell the story that requires more people um, there's a lot of uh, the interview footage with Evelyn Bruce, who's the witness for the defense on Rasp's side, who says that, you know, he spent the time where he was supposed to be out murdering Jane Gill with uh, with her. Yeah. Uh, but there, there's a couple other people who kind of come in um, throughout just to give context and explain things. So it, it it does feel necessary in this episode to have multiple interviews to just kind of understand what's going on and i feel like this episode if anything could have probably been been longer i feel like i mean i i know the the parrot's going into parrot witness protection or whatever <laughs> it is but i really feel like um i wish this episode ended with some kind of audio recording of the parrot yeah. doing the voice i feel like that's the kind of missing piece for me to maybe make some judgment for myself or come to some kind of conclusion about this because like yeah, Annette Bridge-Klausing is probably full of it. Uh, Gary Rasp is probably wrongly convicted, but I feel like I, I don't know. Like, I, I need to hear the I need to hear the words from the parrot's mouth, maybe to to make some kind of decision. You know, you uh, need to get the parrot in the in Terratron for me to really feel like uh, yeah. like I I, feel I, like I, it I can decide really, for sure. I really think it does. Like I'm I'm yeah I'm like I'm mostly there, but it's just you know. It's one of it those things where if, if you, it would be the nail in the coffin or, you know, maybe if you, if they finally like brought up this parrot and you could hear the tone of its voice or what, what it's imitating. And you're like, yeah. Oh, that doesn't sound like somebody being murdered at all. Maybe it's with cast out. So yeah, I don't know. I remember I, I used to babysit kids. They're like two sets of twins in this family. Uh, and they had a parrot and the parrot would like constantly be, shrieking uh because you know you have a bunch of kids and there's like a cat it was a french family so the the parrot would be like screaming like menu menu mm. uh, so like <laughs> you know i think and at bridge classic is lying but at the same time when she's like oh yeah that you know the former family had a kid named richard so the, you know it's like ah, like i i, I want to hear the parrot talk is <laughs> maybe yeah. my, my one issue with this episode you know it reminds me of and i think why i have such a strong reaction to her she reminds me so much of emily miller from the thin blue line which is the woman who says yes. everywhere i go there's murders even around my house yeah she's the woman yeah. who her perjury is what gets she's the key witness who 
points her finger at Randall Dale Adams and says, that's the man, right? And she's the one who commits perjury. Basically, her being a liar and Morris proving it gets um, Randall Dale Adams out of prison. Annette Bridges Klausing has the same affect, the same way of telling stories, the same sort of she doesn't realize how, you know, I I hired a hitman to kill Jane is what he told me. And it's like, this all sounds like nonsense, you know, like, I don't know what the actual story is, but yep. everything about your affect tells me you are a liar with no conscience and no moral compass. I think that she's way further along into zone six than, than Sandra is, <laughs> you know what I mean? Than, than Sandra London is there's something about her. That's really, um, that's really like, these are what the bad people in the world are like. When you go back to the desert Island problem, we talked about with Mr. Personality yep. of who do you want to be trapped on uh, a desert Island with Eichmann or, or uh, Annette Bridges Klausing Eichmann, I would, you know, like that, that other person. There's more meat on the bones killed. for when you finally resort to cannibalism. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, but just like this, this is a person that's really the kind of person I personally find terrifying, you know, because those people are around in your life. You have to work with them and they will just say anything. And I always feel particularly helpless against this kind of the person who's just sort of like immune to both the truth and shame. You know, they, yeah. they just feel like there's nothing you can do to talk sense into them. And talking sense into people is my only defense in the world, you know? So when well, there's no uh, other appeal, I don't know what to do with them. I mean, immunity from the truth is something that comes up in a couple of other episodes. I feel like maybe we want to save the only truth for later, but in the King no, of the Unabomber, it. It, it definitely comes up also. I feel like there's, there's definitely a through line between some of these where um, in the Kingdom of the Unabomber, uh, I think Gary Greenberg, he's writing to Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber. Uh, basically, he wants to get published, and his idea is that, well, if I attach myself to somebody who blows things up, it's like uh, the next best thing to blowing somebody up to get attention. So he thought maybe I could write a biography about him and that like it would be useful to Kaczynski, it would be useful to me, it would be useful to everybody. And while he's talking about his correspondence with Kaczynski, uh, he discusses that they had this debate about whether there's such a thing as objective truth it was yeah. like one of the things that they would debate about. It was like an ongoing thing. And he describes uh, Ted Kaczynski writing him back saying, um, if a nuclear bomb explodes, the consequences will be the same for the people who believe in objective truth and the people who don't. <laughs> Yeah. Which is is a good answer, actually. I think. But this is something Morris talks about. True, yes. Morris is a real believer in, in objective truth, and he always says, sure. "If you find yourself on death row, convicted of a murder you didn't commit, you will begin to believe in objective truth very quickly. Well, like, you will I really no longer like, believe um, the truth is subjective. Like the sub, the idea of the subjectivity of truth is like." one of the worst things that's most commonly accepted in present day. I feel like I've, I've run into so many people who believe this and I feel like it's almost a, a dangerous concept that, well, like, you know, what really is truth? Truth is what you make of it and like all yeah. that stuff. I, and that's I feel where it like, ties oh. into the, to the mob lawyer, right? Who at the beginning says, yes. uh, if I'm guilty, that's injustice. If I'm not guilty, that's justice, right? Yeah. Where he says, you know, justice the only is in the eye of the beholder. It's like beauty. Yeah. yeah, that that's the only truth, 
you know, is that, you know, and he makes a very compelling thing. Murray Richmond, I find him so charming. I forget. Yes. I forget I, that like, oh, I'm, I, I was like, he should be in the heroes category. And I'm like, no, he's objectively. Well, like, all right. I mean, this is my objective. stance on Murray Richmond is I yeah. feel like it would be easy to paint him as like a scumbag lawyer who protects terrible people. Yeah. But I, I think he's right that he is performing a job in a system that has flaws and he's he's doing the job to the best of his abilities because people do deserve a defense in the way that the American justice system is structured. It's like and he talks about yeah. when when he's indicted saying getting that paper that says uh, the United States versus Murray Richmond Richmond and like there's nothing more terrifying than seeing those words than the yes. United States versus and that somebody's got to get out there and defend you because they've got hundreds of cops on their side and dozens yep. of prosecutors and the legal system and everybody assumes that they're looking at a criminal when you walk in as a defendant you know and that like he's he's the only thing standing between the United States and his defendant between yep. all of those resources. And so there is something about him that I'm like, ah, I fucking love him. I mean, he yep. sings my uh, number from my favorite musical. You know, how can I resist this guy? <laughs> but I, I think like what he's talking about partly, like uh, true justice in the American way doesn't really exist. I think like there is a lack of search for objective truth in the way that the legal system is structured where you have a, you know, you have a prosecution, an offense, and you have a defense and they like butt heads. And I was thinking about... Um, anatomy of a murder the other day and how it's like th these lawyers are almost like playing a sport it's like yeah. who's better at lawyering and whoever is the best at lawyering at building a narrative at tearing down witnesses and finding nuggets to like you know like you said uh like murray richmond says find a pinhole to drive a truck through yeah like who is the best at that like wins at at justice you know <laughs> which is sort of the way that it's structured it's not really like this search for objective truth, you know, I was thinking about, um, I was talking with somebody about how experts are brought in for either prosecution or defense and these things. And it's not like you have a panel of experts who try to come to some kind of objective conclusion. You get people like Mr. Death who said like, oh, of course, they're going to be a repeat offender. And like, or just the way that Michael it's structured. Stone, you get merciful personality who's an overtly silly person saying overtly silly things. Yes. You know, or you have Dr. Death, you have Mr. Grigson, who's yeah. everybody is a danger to society, no matter what, <laughs> that the yeah. prosecution, it's not like they bring in all these people and you go, aha, those are people in possession of the truth. Unlike Murray Richmond, who's who's just some lawyer who's playing games with everybody. No, it's the, the prosecution has enlisted people who are self-deceiving about truth it's like when 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 uh richmond says i don't Aaron Moore says was he evil or something and, and richmond says i don't think evil exists he's fulfilling yep. a need right and i think that that's a much more subtle understanding of human nature than anything michael stone dr michael stone is able to arrive at you know in mr personality i think that i realize i said mr death i meant stone not uh, uh, mr personality okay. yeah well um, but also but remember Reuters brought in as a as a as a witness in trials. He, he was That's also brought in as, a, an as an expert witness, as an expert. Yeah. So like, I think like it's a justice system that is not really interested in objective truth necessarily. It might position itself like that, and you would hope that the conclusion comes close to 
that, but it's very understandable how somebody can be wrongly convicted. It's very understandable how somebody can be let off the hook. Um, you know, we, we have this sort of ex, ex, uh, explanation that, oh, they, they had a good lawyer or, oh, they just had a bad lawyer. And it's like, oh, we just all accept this as like, yeah, that's part of the system. <laughs> you know, yeah. like, um, well, it's so funny. I, My I dad think... uh, gets uh, brought in as an expert witness sometimes uh, in trials because he's one of the only people in, in the world who, who does his job. And uh, he's like, it's just the easiest money. Just being an expert <laughs> witness is just the easy, you get paid a ton and you don't actually have to, yeah. to know anything. Um, but I, it's, it's definitely fascinating. Again, when you talk about the line between entertainment and crime, that's what Richmond does in the courtroom. He keeps on talking about it as being a yes. theater. He talks about the appropriate costumes for his defense to wear, to you know, for his defendants to wear so that they'll get let off. You dress this yep. way when everybody else is dressing this way. I mean, um, you sing the songs, you go low, and then you get loud, and you're quiet, and you're doing a performance. It, it is a performance. It is theatrics. When I was in high school, we had a, a law class. Yeah. This was the only class in all of high school that I did very well in. I got 100% in the, the class, which was like unheard of. Um, our, our teacher was uh, a former lawyer, Mr. Beth Manny, who was a nice guy. And he was like adamant that I should go into law because he, yeah. he thought I was really good at this. But I feel like I just understood then that like, yes, you have to understand the the information, the difference between like tort law and whatever, like all that stuff, like, you know, you can memorize, but like the real important part is the, the storytelling element, the theatrical element, building a narrative. Uh, we had a mock trial and uh, I, I thought it was like, you know, very generous what he said at the end. He was like, oh, like your, your presentation at the mock trial, I was the defense attorney in this fake trial scenario but he said it was it was as good as anything he had ever seen in a real courtroom but like i feel like i was acting you know if i think yeah. back on that so like that that was sort of my realization is is that i think a lot of what goes on in the courtroom you know there's a certain procedure you have to follow there's certain precedents you have to understand and information you have to put together but really it's about building a story it's storytelling you know it's, it's not fundamentally different than the making of film really it's you know this is also reminding me of with the to go back to the parrot episode and what morris is interested in he's also always one of his projects he's always trying to get made and i've been hearing about it for 30 years i swear is king boots about the show dog that killed its owner and was put on trial and like 10 years ago now, I remember hearing that Paul Rudd had finally signed on to do it and was like after Ant-Man and was going to do the Errol Morris movie. I have no idea why he can't get it made or doesn't make a documentary about it. But it is one of those stories uh, that, again, ties into the parrots. He's interested in animals being called into court and that kind of thing. But um, but just like the the story of how uh, absurd it makes the system seem and how building a story in a courtroom around a dog of just like how do we make any of these decisions about what a crime is and what culpability yeah. is and what responsibility is and what consciousness is which is sort of at the heart of crime proceedings like in all of his work is the nature of consciousness is sort of at the heart of all the stories because of how our mind interacts with reality is that schism between reality and truth there's an objective reality that our mind has a really hard time coming in contact with you know i think he would admit 
and that that's what a lot of these films are about is there is an objective reality we're really terrible at identifying it and we have to build all of these structures to try and access it in some way that the court system is a structure in that way and when it goes haywire you see how weird and artificial it is like with king boots or the parrot where you go like we've made all these decisions or with mr personality you know and then you have somebody like murray richmond who comes along and is like yes this is all theatrical this is all constructed uh this is i'm playing my role but there is also the objective reality of a piece of paper that says the united states versus martin kessler right that's why you can't set foot in america anymore you've got all of those outstanding warrants and i know i shouldn't have killed all those dogs (laughs) (laughs) to be fair they were evil dogs I know, I know. The <laughs> they, they told me to do it. Um, <laughs> no. but, Don't get me started on Berkowitz. I but, but I think like this sort of gets back to Berkowitz. this whole idea of like trying to project structures on reality, which is sort of a more elusive thing. I, I think like often this is why I, I feel like art is a better way of trying to understand life than than some more formal structures sometimes. Um, I mean, that's, like, that's a very vague statement but you know like i feel like sometimes trying to understand the world in like a philosophically logical rational way is is unsatisfying you know i feel like you end up like um you end up Red like Luke ted or, kaczynski. or ted kaczynski or somebody like that being like this doesn't make any sense you know if you try to look at it rationally but have I feel you like, ever read the unabomber's manifesto no i had um somebody did an audiobook version and put it on youtube and i started listening to it and i i lost interest it's so punishingly linear it is the most logical yes. thing you will ever encounter yeah. and that's what you have i think that's part of the realization is like this is so quote unquote rational it's an act of insanity you know yes. like that yes extreme rationality is something that I don't think uh, Michael Stone would ever identify as a signifier of of psychopathy. But to me, it really is. The craziest and most evil people have these incredibly rigidly linear lines of thought. But it's funny when you were talking about philosophy and then I brought up uh, Ted Kaczynski, that reminds me of in One in a Million Trillion and Smartest Man in the World, both Rick Rosner uh, and Christian Lagan, Rosner worries about being the dumb one at Harvard, right? Like Harvard yeah. like looms large as imagination. And Christian Langan hates academia. He singles out academia in the Ivy League several times. And yes. then Ted Kaczynski went to Harvard. He's sort of the person that they think is either smarter than them or that they hate and is controlling the world. And it's funny in a way that this like Ted Cruz, uh, Ted Cruz, Ted Kaczynski is the boogeyman they built in their mind. He's the boogeyman who's going to come on the horse and ride away with Sandra London to them, you know, who's going to take her away to ecstasy. And he's such an absurd figure, Ted Kaczynski, the more you know about him. Also a total fraud, like Danny Rollins and, and Gerald Schaefer. His his remote cabin was like 400 yards from like a Walmart, you know, like, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I think I've read about like um, where I live is, is way more remote than where Ted Kaczynski was living yeah. like I, I, yeah. I live in the, the woods basically but I, I have satellite internet and I've got yeah. Twitter and I've got PlayStation and I'm, I'm very it's, content it's like with his, my technology his brother, but... his brother like lived around like walking to, it's completely yeah, yeah. but like but he was right. also he was also a Vic, he was in the MK Ultra program which is the other thing that's crazy. well that comes up in the uh, Vermut yeah which is um that's a whole other it's <laughs> other Morris show but but then but that's um, it's sort of like a funny way to tie all of this like 
what we're talking about structural insanity yes and it's like you have academia as like this sort of throbbing brain in the middle of all these people about like the, possibly the most insane thing in the world you know <laughs> the yeah. ivy league is somehow the most the 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 corpus colossum of human insanity you know it's just sucking up all the resources from the high iq community <laughs> <laughs> but like it, it's so funny we're talking about kaczynski's sort of like logical hyper rationality you know when um Gary Greenberg's talking about uh, Kaczynski signing his name with this underscore that's like the Mark of Zorro. Yeah. Because Kaczynski had to be like, well, you see, it's not the Mark of Zorro. Actually, it's just two lines with a cross down the middle. And like <laughs> the, the need to correct even like very small things like this and explain like, oh, no, there's no. Someone with a fertile imagination is the line yes, that Kaczynski the, the, loses. Somebody with a fertile imagination was like Kaczynski's speak for defective, I think is yeah. how he describes it, right? Which is. That's really, that's really interesting. <laughs> it's, it's interesting because that episode is one of the weaker episodes in the series. I think we both agree. Yeah. I, I feel like it's, it sounds better on paper, but I feel like, yeah. I mean, you talk about Errol Morris examining people who are self-deceived in some way, who have uh, some, some delusion. Gary Greenberg is not that self-deceptive. He, he understands exactly like how crazy what he was, was doing and kind of comes away with it with uh, some self-awareness, you know, when he's talking about like trying to get the trust and sympathy of a man who killed people, he, you know, he lays it all out. And I feel like that. Well, kind of takes I feel like he has, he has too much self-awareness to lay it all out mm. that he's actually too self-aware to, to be honest with Morris. I feel like he high, he's constantly reframing everything to his own advantage in a way that's successful. I feel like he knows the language again, zone yep. six. He's learned the language. <laughs> he's learned the language yep. too well to ever be caught in the act of being himself, that he's a therapist and a psychiatrist and he knows the language of it or psychologist, true, yeah. not psychiatrist. He knows the language of it. He knows self-analysis too well to ever be honest on camera about what was happening inside of him. He knows how to turn everything into a funny story or a cutesy story and doesn't get at the darkness of what was happening, which is that he was desperate to impress a mass murderer and get into his graces and was willing to degrade himself to do it He's too clever about presenting this in the best possible terms. He's just, he's too shrewd. And I sort of understand what Kaczynski boots him at the end for being like, you're, you essentially, you are an untrustworthy person. Yeah. I have the same reaction to him of you, you are, you are not able to be honest about this because you've when, been like, given Kaczynski the tools gives him for the apology. Honest. And then he's like, ha, it was a fake apology. I got you. <laughs> well, I mean, what again this is an episode that um, i feel like might have benefited from there's another person who's also writing kaczynski trying to get uh, get in his good graces and maybe write a biography and they're kind of he's trying to undercut he, gary right? greenberg and greenberg's trying to undercut him and i would have well it's, maybe it's kaczynski's lawyer who yes. who he's dueling with and greenberg's analysis is that the lawyer ultimately wants to write a book but it was actually Kaczynski's lawyer. And to Kaczynski's point of view, this is the person he trusts most in the world right now. This is sort of the guy who's on his team. So it's very easy in Greenberg's way. It's court intrigue for him to get pushed out, right? But 
Okay, well, I, I wasn't actually completely clear on that it was Kaczynski's lawyer. The way Greenberg was describing him, I really thought like, oh, it's just some other parasocial kind of trying to worm his way into Kaczynski's good graces to write a book. Like, it sounds like, you know, there's another Gary me, Greenberg out this there. This will come up later. You just use the word parasocial. And I, this is something, this is one of my bugaboos, like trope, okay. you know, where trope is not synonymous with cliche. Trope means metaphor. And a long time ago, overused metaphors got called tropes fairly frequently. So, but anytime somebody says when they just mean cliche or stereotype and they use trope, I'm like, you're trying to sound smart, but you're in fact dumb, right? Oh no, I said something to try to sound smart, but I sounded dumb. Parasocial means something different. Parasocial means a relationship in which one person is not aware of the other person's uh, fixation on them. And That's what I meant before he wrote Kaczynski, like Gary okay. Greenberg was like sitting around being like, who, who can I, who can I write to, to like yeah. <laughs> make them realize that I exist as a person? Like, I think the yeah. way he describes it, it's like, uh, he said, it's like chasing an ambulance where you're like trying to go with their wake. Yeah. Uh, but so, like you a know, Michael can... Jackson super fan who like, yeah, yeah. loves Michael Jackson and thinks about him and knows all the interviews and stuff. Yes. Like I, I probably have a parasocial relationship with Daryl well, Morris. It, it, it goes from a, it, but... <laughs> it goes from, I think being a parasocial relationship to being like an actual relationship. Well, there's a relationship to, yeah. that I think is really important for the internet. And I coined this word. And this is why something that I'm very interested in. It's pseudo social, right? Which are relationships that pretend to be real, but are obviously fake, transparent and transactional in some way. Like when you think of like a cam girl or only fans and they're the people who they interact with all day, that's a pseudo social relationship. Uh, that that performer doesn't actually care about these people in any way. And part of the performance is pretending to care yes. and have a relationship with them. Gary this Greenberg is why has I feel a, like I, I wouldn't like pseudo-social. Yeah. <laughs> I know the way but they Greenberg described Greenberg Kaczynski it. is pseudo-social. Greenberg doesn't yes. actually care about Kaczynski. No, yeah. no. No, Los Angeles is the city of pseudo-social relationships. <laughs> um, but no, I, I think that's right. Like he's looking for something transactional, but but does he get really invested where he's when he's talking about the court intrigue and stuff like that? Like, does he get genuinely emotionally invested or is it always? I, well, I guess he we'll was talk always looking more for about like this the, with uh, We Live in Public, the the Harvesting right. Me episode is what is that episode's all about, sort of the border between parasocial and pseudosocial relationships. Yeah. Yes. And real relationships, you know, to the extent that like, anybody who's on the the internet and has any kind of fan base they interact with at some point in time has people that they sort of go i'm not sure if that person's a fan or a friend of mine you know or an or enemy like, god yeah. <laughs> it happens to like if you're on twitter you're like yeah who's this person who keeps interacting with me like yeah i don't know who they are like like what are, <laughs> are some kind of asshole? To like, have some real relationship to them reply it, it guys like into... you hate your reply guys yeah. you know but like i mean not not that I think like an interview with Kaczynski would have benefited this, but it makes you wonder like, you know, was was Greenberg thinking about Kaczynski like nonstop every day while he's working on these letters and waiting for Kaczynski to reply? And Kaczynski, it's like some kind of afterthought. It's like, you know, when I when I One check my many. email bin, like yeah. it's, you know, like I would guess that like Greenberg probably took up like, you know, 
20 minutes of, of thinking for Kaczynski per week or something like yeah. this, you know. Whereas Greenberg's living it. But I think the comparison yeah. to court intrigue that Greenberg makes again there is true. The king does not spend his day thinking about, you yeah. know, the archdukes, you know, sort of swarming around him and, and those those people. He doesn't spend his day thinking about them. He spends his day just being the king and sort of accepting visitors when they come to pledge fealty to him you know and that's that's what greenberg is is doing and he sounds like so like when he's talking about oh well my letter was just a more subtle version of sucking up to the unabomber like he does put in that like yeah i know this is kind of crazy sort of phrasing to it but it's also like you can tell he's genuinely offended that because uh, kaczynski did not appreciate the subtleness of his sucking up letter you know what i mean yeah. Um, that he that there that's the thing is he's too good at hiding what he actually feels about stuff you know he's he's too good he knows what crazy looks like again it's like what we talked about in the mr personality episode where you know michael stone says that there's certain people that if they're zone six treatment is in fact worse for them because it gives them the tool set and language to uh, pretend to be sane and avoid detection like the the taylor and and ed kemper the, that people that just once they had access to the language and intellectual tools for treatment, they just used it against the system very subtly and effectively. And I think that's exactly what Greenberg is. I think he has too much self-awareness to be a, an appropriate Errol Morris subject. You know, I, I think that that there's a reason Errol Morris deals and self-deception as one of his main themes. And it's not related to intelligence. You know, that that Robert McNamara and Steve Bannon definitely live in the throes of self-deception. McNamara, more than anybody, is one of the most self-deceiving. He's yep. as self-deceiving as Fred Leuchter, and he's the walking IBM machine with legs. He's one of the smartest men in the world, genuinely smartest men in the world, not just some guy who gamed an IQ test, you know, and right. and he has no sense of self whatsoever. He He seems oblivious to what he is and who he is. I was thinking about when you feel like uh, the Donald Rumsfeld documentary probably should have been similar, but then like Rumsfeld, he just lies through his teeth. He knows what he's doing. He's like he's completely. The, he's a master of debate and he's somebody, okay. the theme of that movie is you will never get Rumsfeld. Yeah. That's what that movie is trying to teach you right. is he will sleep soundly every single night you will that, that never smile. get rumsfeld and i know somebody some who you will um, never get i know somebody who will like you know ask you to do something and they know it's it's uh not quite fair or not quite balanced or like oh i'll pay you back and they never do and like when they get into trouble they, they break out that smile like oh it's just all jokes right and like rumsfeld yeah. had that same smile where he's like you know it's just me like and you it, yeah you will not it's that smile of somebody who's never gotten like the punch in the face that they probably deserve you know but it's it's true that uh you know you won't won't get him it's it's somebody who gets out of trouble but... sleep soundly he's he's like kissinger he's he's it's... gonna die peacefully in his in a beautiful bedroom one night you know that's just the way it, the way it is with some people and that's really frustrating that's one of the sure. ironies of life is that sometimes the worst people in the world get away with it you know there's something to be learned from that you know that's a human existential lesson not a political lesson that that rumsfeld's going to get away with it he's going to fucking he already did it's over 
You know, he did. Whatever happens, you know, he could have a safe fall on him. He could get shot in the face. He already got away with it. Is he dead? Did he die recently? I, I can't remember. <laughs> I like That's the thing. Is he kind of disappeared into into uh, obscurity me, me now. Either. So it's like, even if they like dragged him out, and it would be like when they bring out a dead pope and put them on trial you know what i mean like it's it's it doesn't solve anything it's, it's... but that's what a lot of <laughs> they, they people want that. morris's movies to be they want them they want him to dig up robert mcnamara and put him on trial yeah. robert mcnamara got away with it he did the damage he's gonna do you didn't yes. stop him you know and he's and he's an old man he's 87 when they're making the movie you know like he got he got away with it you know and digging up that pope and putting him on a trial accomplishes nothing it's crazy it's a it's a, a crazy thing to do you know um we should get into uh the final episode we haven't talked about yeah. really which is the stalker um and i will start off by saying just to put it back to the zones Right. One of Michael Stone's zones that I found funny is zone two, which are the people that aren't really a problem whatsoever. Right. And one of the things he says is embraceive employees who rub people the wrong way. And that's we have we have a movie. And it's funny that his system for identifying who's going to be capable of true evil. We have a guy, Tom McElvain, who shoots up a post office yeah. And he's basically described as an abrasive employee who rubs people the wrong way everywhere he goes. He doesn't have a criminal history. He doesn't have a real history of violence. It depends on how you want to interpret certain things he did when he was getting thrown out of the Marines. But he's he's basically just he's in zone two, according to Michael Stone, it, up until he does something awful, you know. So what do you make of this movie? This is one of the harder ones for me to digest yeah. in the entire series. I mean. One of the things that comes up is this idea that there were warning signs that, uh, and we should mention the interview isn't with no, it's, it's, it's with uh, Bill, Kinsley, Bill Kinsley, who was his uh, employer supervisor, yeah, uh, at the post office. He talks about like his um, he had aspirations of being postmaster general, and you know he was like a career post office guy. This was his his life, his career. Um, so Tom McElvain was one of his employees. Uh, I guess they didn't get along. Um, Tom McElveen didn't get along with anyone. It needs he to didn't get along with out. anyone. He was he had been like okay. censured for calling his female supervisor a cunt and a bitch on multiple yep. times. He but he, he uh, did not get along with anybody. When Bill Kinsley tried to intervene and say like, "Hey, maybe there's something wrong with this guy," you know, his union supervisor would say like, "Oh, you're you're just picking on him." Yeah, and. Um, you're bullying him. You're bullying him. And, you know, after Tom McElveen was fired, I guess he pointed the finger at Bill Kinsley. Um, he was threatening him. And the entire union turned around and it was a matter of record on the union that the management caused this. And the stuff yes. that's not in this documentary is that the Postal Service, uh, National Postal Service, uh, is established in 1970. It hasn't been around a super long amount of time. And then when Reagan came along, the funding was dramatically cut. So in 82, it's running out of money. This this happens in 85. Is this when this shooting happens? Uh, something like sure. this. 
but they essentially bring in all of these supervisors to get the budgets under control. And there's an incredibly tight crunch. And it's at a time when the unions are dying and being killed off yeah. in, in the United States. So there's a real like unions fighting for their life quality to what's happening is here as well, to the postal unions really fighting for their life in this era as well. But McIlvain is a classic um, horrible employee who's protected by the union. He's caught throwing mail and gutters, yeah. not delivering stuff, going out on routes that should take a half an hour and disappearing for 12 hours and not having the mail delivered. Yes. He's just like classic guy who would be fired if the unions weren't there, but the unions have their duty to make sure everybody has well, a right eventually to he, it gets to the point where he is fired and then he's threatening and uh, to kill everybody. And- to, to kill everybody and the legal system doesn't want to step in they're like ah there's not really like ah whatever <laughs> they, sort of, they let uh, him get a gun permit after he's been calling the supervisor yes. house and saying i'm going to kill you and your family yeah. he's allowed to get a gun okay. permit he goes into the police office and says yeah. i'm going to kill everyone down at the postal office just so you guys know and they still let him have the gun permit yeah so after i feel like one of the really important things about this documentary is about after the spree killing uh everyone basically points the finger at bill kinsley and said you know in a way basically like it's it's your fault you You were a bad boss you did this uh i think the phrase autocratic management is used yeah bill kinsley says like my my own wife told me she wouldn't want to be in the same post office as me Uh, and i thought it was interesting too like i was sort of looking on youtube and reddit about this to this day, you have people who said, like, oh, I worked for Bill Kinsley. He was a real, like, hard boss. Like, he was yeah. a hard ass. He was a narcissist. You know, you see people. Be... I, I feel like part of the idea going on in this documentary is that, like. He obviously because... sucks. That's he, part he of sucks. the idea. You can be a bad boss, and it doesn't mean that it's your fault that this yeah. guy went on a shooting spree. I feel like. When something like a shooting spree happens, people want some kind of explanation, you know, like where can we point the finger at? And, you know, if you have a disgruntled employee, it sort of seems like, okay, like it must be the boss's fault, you know, so. Especially if he goes in and just shoots the management people, yeah, which is what yeah. McElvain did. And it basically, it ruined Bill Kinsley's career. Um, you know, he, the way he's talking, it, it seems like at least he felt like he was basically a pariah after this happened. Um, you know, everyone was. They uh, sent him to essentially do a rubber room. He sent to a post office yeah. in Birmingham that's like an old, restored, basically post office museum, not like a functional place, and sits around doing nothing all day. You know, is a, is essentially what happens to him. But it's. Yeah. But I would. I would. That's one of the things I think is interesting about this movie is that he's overtly unpleasant. He's the kind yes. of guy you hear him talk for one minute and you're like. I've had bosses like that. They suck so bad. I would have loved to have shot that guy. You know, you really do have just one minute around and you're like, God damn, he sucks, right? That's part of what I think why Morris is interviewing him and not McIlvain is he wants to show the person, you know, that yeah. there is a person here and it's easy to make this guy into a target in a lot of ways. The, the well, also, stuff is, it's yeah. like, it's so clear that like, yeah, he probably sucked as a boss. He also took every step to, like, alert people that this guy was a, a problem. Yeah. 
That's you know, and the crazy. response is like, well, you're just picking on him. You know, that that was sort of the attitude. It's that, crazy. I yeah. was trying to find out more information about what happened to him. And there's a Vice article from last year that essentially takes the position of, yeah, this guy shooting up the post office and, you know, like threatening to like do sexual violence to his female co-workers. He was probably a bad guy, but these bosses were the real bad guys. They were bullies. And it's from, it's this vice. And then you look at the guy who wrote it and he's a wiener. And of course, it's like, <laughs> of course, this guy is most concerned with bullying. You know, like, of course, this guy is like number one. You know what the number I mean, one problem days, in the I, world I you is when you're a dork on your resume to apply mean, for vice. But yeah, exactly. <laughs> just this guy who's just like probably spent 80% of his childhood being shoved into things. You know, and you're like, of course, this guy is most worried about, you know, what's what's happening with bullying. But to this day, yeah. and it was also it was it was folded into a left wing thing that I think is still very yeah, common that I find issue. Yeah. But just this like right after Columbine, I don't know if you're old enough to remember the reaction wasn't these were horrible psychopath kids that Harris in particular I can't remember which one. One of them's like the guy who was going to do this no matter what. And one of them was like the parasite on him. I think it was Harris who was the genuine psychopath. But after that, there was a lot of these were bullied outsiders who shot the jocks, right? And there was an effort to really understand if you watch Bowling for Columbine, it's like they're trying to find out who to blame. And there's this push towards sympathy coming from the left on like these people were failed in some way, right? Mm -hmm. And it's a total time capsule from that era. The, if anything, the opposite is true now. It, that it's when there's, completely done a 180 in, in yeah. my lifetime. I've, I've seen that where but now you, it's like, you know, oh, maybe the system failed them. And it's like, no, it's guns. Guns are the reason why yeah. this person did, or, you know, whatever uh, issue. So it's, it's kind of done a, a flip side. Yeah. But you look with this and it really was, there's still people that see it as this was a horrible work environment where the management yep. was draconian and had too much power and that's why this happened and it's it's funny that to see that people will still try and fold it that way even as mass shootings have become more common and more understandable this was seen as a specific post office problem at the time yeah. up through the 90s to a point where the government commissioned a big study in the late 90s that said no there's not more workplace violence at post offices than any other workplace if anything it's slightly below average that like workplace violence is, is actually very common post offices are normal but they spent a lot of time trying to define why this was happening and figure out why this was happening, what was causing postal workers to snap. And there was undoubtedly a strain that was like, the management has too much power and this is a natural, like this guy's almost a revolutionary. You can kind of hear in these people's voices that this is yeah. a radical revolutionary act that he's engaged in in some way. You know, that this is, that this is almost a Bolshevik action that he's taken here. You can kind of hear in these, you know, the kind of players right. who write for Vice in their voices, you know, uh, that, that kind of completely absurd idea. Um, but I was, the reason I was researching is I had heard for a long time that there was a specific sorting machine that for some reason drove people crazy and that they had identified this machine and it's like the AFX, you know, 2980. Some kind of chemical or? No, that it was like the way you used it kept you on a pace that was like an inhuman pace. Like you had to keep oh, yeah. up with this machine 
and it was and it was like found the users like absolute limit for speed and would keep them at it all day you know like something about this yes. but i could not and once they stopped using this machine workplace postal shootings went away right this is one of the versions i've heard i was trying to find any information on this and i was like did i just dream this like where did i find because i could not find any information about it whereas the like you know the unions were just fighting back against yep. the management is still very 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 popular to this day it's it's kind of crazy knowing what we know about mass shootings which are that like it's somebody with impulsivity issues combined with violent fantasies this is these are the people who commit mass violence people who have exceptionally violent fantasies and impulsivity issues and identifying those people as like the only way you can you can deal with this problem and even that like that helps you barely at all. What I've just said, this does very little. But again, like McIlvain from the beginning, he's thrown out of the Marines for driving a tank over a car, like his yes, his commander's car. Supposedly, there's he claims that that it was not his commander's car. There's dispute about it. In any case, the Marines are like, get out of here. Yeah. Like you're out of the Marines. He fights with authority there. He fights with authority at the post office. He fights Show with him. Uh, there's a clip of him trying out boxing. Like yeah, he's doing kickboxing. Yeah. yeah. He's like, and you can see if he, if it's 2022, he's some like gross MMA loser who's like hates yep. women. He's very easily identifiable yep. type gets thrown out of the military. want to be cop ends up as a postal where like, you know, this type, but for some reason, because it happens in the middle of the union battles of the eighties, they're able to, to reframe it in, in a funny way. But this, this film to me feels more like a, um, uh, a time capsule than a lot of the other movies of sort of a debate about well, I feel like some of the before. phrasing even like I don't even think people really use going postal anymore like that yeah. was you know I remember when people would still say that about uh, mass shootings but it, I, I think the phrasing is like dropped out of pop culture yeah. I, I don't even think it's like out of uh what the smartest man in the world would call PC. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I think it's just like not really relevant anymore. Yeah. It's not uh, just know. that it's an anthem. So people don't use it. It's, it's just people have forgotten about it in some way, but it feels like because the, the mass shooting uh, debate has become so big and so intransigent and so seemingly impossible to solve um, to see this film, that's at a different phase of its development. I mean, can you imagine now if somebody tried to, argue that like one of these shooters had a right to do it because of bullying it's just like that doesn't exist as a framework anymore it's sort of so crazy to think that you know that they'd ever build a bill kinsley as a villain ever again and the union would feature him in magazines and whatnot he was built as a real yeah. villain he was featured on the news he was identified as this is the guy who caused this in a very concrete way uh, and it's it's crazy to think that would ever happen to a victim again. It's it's absolutely insane. I mean, I don't know. It, it probably depends on the victim. I, I I could see people like reframing things to fit a certain political narrative. I mean, that, that for mass shooting, you think? I think if there's a particular, a specific particular target, like uh, like a. Uh, the Japanese uh, politician who was just murdered, yes. who nobody had ever heard of. And then they heard he's conservative and now they're celebrating that he was shot. You know, I think something yeah. like that. Yes. Something like that. I think if, you know, you had somebody go and, uh, you know, for instance, uh, shoot up a bunch of people on wall street. 
Yeah. You know, we would be talking about that differently than than somebody who shot up a school. That's true. And I guess people's parents, it's in fashion to blame people's parents now too. Yes. Like a few of the recent shooters, it's been very fashionable to be like the parents are responsible for this and need to face charges as well. I guess you're right. I guess I guess it hasn't changed in in that way. It's just sort of the target for for who's to blame has shifted a little bit in that. But I do think that the that this is something it's funny on the one hand it feels fundamentally senseless but on the other hand to hear kinsley talk about it and talk you through step by step it also feels inevitable it feels like not how did this happen i can't comprehend it it feels like anybody who was paying attention he and one of the guys who was killed would talk about you know how this is going to happen how McIlvain is clearly going yeah. to do this you know so i mean i thought a little bit about this with the uh... Sandra London, when she's talking about uh, being with Schaefer, and it feels like there were so many warning signs that this guy is mentally off. Yes. Like, it it feels almost like inevitable that something doesn't step in. And I don't know. I mean, it's hard to be like, yeah, I think this guy is probably going to murder somebody. Can you go arrest him uh, without any real, real evidence? Just like, you know, oh, I, I think he, there's something off. But if you have them saying like, oh, I'm going to kill somebody, you would hope that maybe that would count for something. Um, it's interesting, too. In the Mr. Personality episode, Michael Stone talks about this boom in serial killing that happens in the 60s and 70s, right? Where yeah, it's he like sort of one or two blames it on, uh, or maybe not blames, but he, he says that the sexual revolution and women having more rights kind of plays it. a role in it. Yeah, but one of the things he identifies that uh, John Cribbs and I are writing this book about the about crime cinema. And one of the things I was really shocked by is that I had always been under the impression that the boom in crime in the 60s and 70s was like, it's somehow puffed up and not real and like an artifact of racism or something, you know, but if you look at it, no, there is an unbelievably massive boom in crime in the 60s and 70s it is it is almost inconceivable how much crime increased and more than that it's not uniform crime across the united states right and there's it's a bit of a worldwide crime boom but it's really the united states where it happens and it's not everywhere in the united states it's concentrated in cities right so if you natural neutral uh if you um uh, adjust for that right that it's not just that there's a crime increase in the United States on the hold, there's a massive crime increase within the cities, un- like 10,000%, like unbelievably huge increase in crime. It's not that high, but it's but it's inconceivably high, starting in like 62, going to like, uh, to like by 69, it's just like different world. And it's not places like Bakersfield, California. It's like Los Angeles, Detroit, Newark, Baltimore, New York City, where it's all happening. So it's it's not even uniform. It's like in these specific zones. And trying to identify what happened to cause this increase in crime is something that, if, you know, anybody who cares about crime and policing and the legal system has spent a lot of time trying to figure out why uh, yes. going from it. You know, as you mentioned, Michael Stone identifies the sexual revolution, which is um, unquestionably a part of it that that women are allowed to say no to sexual partners, which causes violence against them. Right? Like that's that's a very bad people get get told no and respond with violence. Right? 
Um, I think that a lot of people would identify female autonomy as something that engenders male violence, right? I think that that's not a crazy thing. It's not yep. enough to explain going from like three serial killers in a decade worldwide to like hundreds operating uh, within, you know, the United States four years later, you know, maybe it is. But one thing I think when I watch all of these movies that I really writing about crime and thinking about crime in the 60s and 70s that I think gets overplayed. Well, there's two things. One isn't relevant to what we're talking about, but one is that there's a change in how we deal with mental health that happens in the 50s and 60s. That's really meaningful. And it goes from that person's crazy, segregate them from society forever, right? Just lock them up and throw away a key, throw away the key way of dealing with mental health. And that's a bad system because, you know, women suffering from hysteria get locked up. You know what I mean? Just like people who are not actually insane, who are just uh, socially irascible. And talk about um, giving lobotomies yeah. at that time, often to people who really, they would say, oh, like there's some behavioral issue. And really yeah. it's just like, one of the, something one completely of the, benign but yeah one of the first women to get a lobotomies was a housewife who just did things that like walk around her house naked in private yeah. and they were like she needs to be lobotomized right yeah. um so that's bad so it's reasonable to want to change in how we approach mental health but you have these two decades where there's a gulf where we stop locking people up permanently but we don't really have a plan for what to do yes. with mentally unhealthy people. And that's when the crime boom happens. And that's unquestionably part of it. There's people like, um, like I can't remember his name now, the guy from Philadelphia, who's the serial killer who would have his kids help him with the stuff. Right. Like, I, I haven't I've, heard about this, but he's a, he, he's the guy who big, a dug a giant, bought an empty warehouse and dug a giant hole in it that he would go into shit in. Right. Very, very crazy guy. Overtly okay. crazy. He's somebody that would have been locked up and put away. Somebody who would like walk around in blood smeared clothes and just genuinely one of the most horrifying. I can't remember his name off the top of my head. I think he was in Philadelphia too. Um, but he would have been locked away. You know, like he, there's no chance. His name was like Crazy Gary was like his yep. nickname too. He was just somebody who everybody knew was completely completely nuts and there's people like that or, or even you know probably richard chase probably would have been locked away as well the vampire of los angeles um who like michael stone mentions he was drinking blood to cure his impotence right it didn't work is the line that michael stone oh, shit. but uh <laughs> but um but that kind of stuff yeah the mental what to do with mentally unhealthy people there's like a gap that a bunch of horribleness flows into as we're trying to reconnoiter it. And it's interesting because I think that we actually do a pretty good job with mentally un, uh, with mental health issues now. Not perfect, but I think we found a much better balance between like, let people roam free and lock them up permanently. And I think that that's part of the reason for the crime drop that happens and continues to this day, why there's so fewer serial yep. murders in particular than there were. But- Have you read um, Freakonomics? No, I mean, you might actually like this book, but like one of their one of the topics they examine is maybe the effect that um, legalizing abortion had on decreasing crime. Yeah. Where you have uh, abortion becoming more common, and then like a lot of the people who might have gone on to be criminals from bad you know, homes, bad houses, bad homes with you know women who wouldn't have necessarily wanted to have that child or be in that situation and have a child. 
then I might have, but those people aren't born at a certain point and that you know over a period of time that uh, demographic uh yeah that would have come to age like they, they don't exist so yeah. um that, that was one of the topics they examined yeah. so like there are a lot of it's i like, think it's there's, there's anytime like, you look at like a big kind of economic there's like 20 don't mean factors. like financial yeah. but economic and yeah. like the sort of human demographic yeah. sense um it, it's like usually a pretty multifaceted kind of yeah topic um but just to tie back to McIlvain, um, yes, I think that I'm not saying there's any one cause. And I would be surprised if yes. that's a factor. The one cause I do, that's very popular these days that just every study shows it's kind of bullshit is the unleaded gasoline thing, that leaded gas. Oh. That, that every study that looks into it is like this is just did not was not impacting crime the way that there's also like, um, I mean, the, the ex-Marine thing is interesting, like, um, I feel like I know people who have been involved in the military. Um, I don't think it necessarily causes mental illness because like I had a friend I was really close to in high school and he had, he had problems with uh, depression and uh, suicide attempt. And when he graduated high school, instead of going out to higher education, he went into the military. Yeah. Uh, I think like his parents thought like, Oh, you know, it'll be structure. good. It'll give him structure. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I, I think he came out of it worse off. Yeah. And, you know, and like, I feel like, you know, he's, he's a nice guy, but like, you know, if something ever happened, it would be like, oh, the military messed up his head. And it's like, yeah. I, that that's not the whole picture. You know, I, I, I just think it was interesting to see that like McIlvain was ex-military that he got kicked out of that. And like, I don't know if that was a signifier that, well, a lot, you know, if you're a, a Marine lot, to begin with, a maybe lot you're of serial killers were in the military and got yeah. kicked out for minorish infractions. It's very, very common. Yes. It's almost in common as common as them wanting to be cops and being failed cops. Those are like <laughs> two of the biggest, no, that they yeah. that, that either getting kicked out of police force and not being able to get in. Um, these are very, you very, find very, a socially acceptable way to, to kill people if you can to apply authority sometimes with force authority. as Christian yes. Lagan says as Lagan you know? says yeah but I think with the mental health stuff why I got on with McIlvain it's interesting because Kinsley tried to walk him through the system and all of the paces of him getting health yeah. uh, getting help and, and dealing with this mental health issue and having it enforced on him and there was just no way to do it there's still always going to be limitations to how the system can help anybody who's completely deranged like that and it's sort of it's interesting because he does everything you would want somebody to do to address an overtly violent and dangerous person was done in this guy's case yeah. and you go maybe there's nothing to be done about some people i think that that's one of the themes of Errol Morris's movies is that reality and history are intransigent, you know, and sometimes there's nothing to be done about that stuff. And that's terrifying because it's human nature to want to do something about this. It, it's something that like I simultaneously accept and refuse to believe, you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> like, it's like, Oh, like wh where was the problem? Why did things have to turn out this way? But like yeah. to understand why, why things turned out this way, it's like, you see all the other ways it could have gone. I, I don't know. It's it's a complicated subject, but I think it, it's something I, I constantly think about. Actually, yeah. Um, I I mean, when we were classifying these episodes, I thought even of maybe considering putting Bill Kinsley in the hero section. These sort yeah. Of, I think like 
Yeah, it, it wouldn't have quite fit, but it would have been kind of interesting to talk about it in conversation with some of those hero figures because I feel like it's he's an interesting figure in that he's probably not a likable guy. Uh, you know, that's the impression you get. He's also somebody who did the right thing the whole way through. He took responsibility for something that no nobody else really wanted to take responsibility for. And, you know, you feel like it's not just that the system failed uh, Tom McElvain. You know, it's like the system also failed Bill Kinsley, who kept trying to engage with it and kept trying to and come to a solution. And the people he was working with, who he was trying to protect, who got killed. Yes. You know, that's one of the perverse things about this episode is that he does seem to have made an effort to protect his friends from getting killed and the system yeah. protected the killer. Throughout. Yeah. You know, it really does seem like the system protected bad guys, which ties it to the Murray Richmond only truth where the system, all of his stories are about getting horrible people off off from jail about the system that we think of as being justice protecting terrible people and you don't like to think of the system that way you know you don't you don't like to think of it as protecting terrible people and putting innocent people in prison but that's the flip side of thin blue line if you have a system that's imperfect innocent people go to jail and awful people go free in some ways well i'm I'm always surprised like there are people who actually believe in these systems and it's like you you kind of have to just to operate in real life and be like a sane normal person but like when you get up close to them you know if you're like uh murray richmond where you're like in the thick of it it's so obvious how how faulty it is you know but i feel like i don't know i i mean it's such a complicated issue but i feel like justice is not a thing that exists in in the real world as a a naturally occurring phenomenon like justice is a human concept and like therefore the only way to get justice is to strive for it to try to be just to try to inflict it on the world and that makes it sort of an inherently messy thing like there's no i don't think there is such a thing as like a perfect justice system yeah i don't know well it's interesting if you go through these films and you know the parrot is obviously about an injustice you know and the only truth is about how to why it's important to perpetrate injustice sometimes the role that that being on the side of the unjust is actually part of justice within our system the kingdom the unabomber he gets caught and he gets put away uh, the stalker that's obviously about how the system has no ability to handle complexity at all you know and the ways you don't hear that story and think well i hope they start locking up guys that are like you know kickboxers who get thrown out of the military who yell at their bosses like right. what what are we even talking about that's you know you want to avoid that's an actual fascistic system that you're proposing in that instance and then the killer inside me is about these guys, even putting them away, they're still allowed to exist as human beings that that she adores this guy that theoretically you want to be the justice is is that they're put in jail yep. and sentenced to the oblivion of history and and made uh, you know uh, demons in our church of humanity, right? But instead you have this lady loving her and he's singing his stupid song in the court hearing it. It's it's about uh, these you know the phrase it makes a mockery of justice is a cliche, but I think these films are all about the ways in which justice is mocked. If you ask, right. 
you know, all about the the justice makes a mockery of itself. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like uh, Mr. Personality talks a little bit about this idea that, well, like evil people don't think that they're doing evil. They they think that like from their point of view, what they're doing is good. And it's like, you know, maybe Ted Kaczynski thinks that he was good. what he was doing was just and that like his imprisonment might be unjust. And, you know, there, there is this sort of thing. But like. I don't know. A I lot also of it's beyond like good too. and evil. It is beyond and good and evil. The fucking quote yeah. Nietzsche is that McElvain, I don't think he thinks along a good evil spectrum. You know, Annette Bridges Clousing, yeah. I don't think she thinks along a good evil spectrum in, in that way. You know, and maybe that's his, his point. I think that's where he's naive is not that they think that they're doing good, just that the concept that I can be anything other than myself would never yeah. occur to them that I would do anything other than what I do is beyond their capacities. And do they think of themselves as evil? You're right. They probably don't. Do they think of themselves as good? They, they probably do. Do they think of their individual actions that they're doing as good or evil? I would say no. I would yeah. say that, that McIlvain probably did not go. I did a really good thing in there going and shooting it up. You know, he probably went in and, has justifications and self-deceptions and I mean, all of those things. The human mind is very good at justifying our own actions. Ah, they had it coming, you know, or like... Or it just doesn't matter why I did it. I did it. Or it doesn't matter. You know, I just did yeah. it, you know. I mean, I was still thinking of active killing where, like, I, I think some people mistakenly describe it as, as uh, these people confessing. There's no confession. They're like, yeah, we did it. Like... And it was yeah. fine is, is the attitude. And yeah. like when you have. Um, and now that the tide has turned, I feel really bad. That was evil. Yeah. But it was awesome. You have to understand well, at the time it was one awesome. Part, I understand like, that it's evil now, but at the time it was, it was really fucking cool. We'd go to the movies, get dressed up on our suits and then go choke communists to death. It's like, you know. You know, I, I think there's like one part in that documentary when uh, it's talking about like, yeah, yeah you know. I can understand what they're going through. I can, I can feel it now. And he's like, no, you can't because they're actually dead. And yeah. like, you just start to see this like little shame eruption that like, oh, wait, maybe what I did was, was um, maybe I was, I was actually evil. You know, yeah. you start to see like, the, it's, it's not about the, it's not about the act itself, maybe, or I guess maybe it's especially about the act, but it's, it's about, uh, the justifications and maybe sort of stripping that away and that like you know sort of realizing that you were you were doing something that was like evil that you had this like little inkling of shame about that people are you know all of society is telling you like oh no this is okay that's fine it's like oh wait that was actually evil and you get this like um i was thinking of like the, the burping the kind of retching that he does at the end of that documentary it's, it's very similar to um did you watch that that series the jinx uh, no, I didn't watch any of it, no. but I know what you're talking about. You know, at, at the end, he's he's doing something very similar. Where he's like, ah, "Kill the ball," <laughs> and I and I know. Uh, it's like, oh my god! <laughs> I know the uh, the the uh, that series through the uh, "It's Always Sunny" parody. When, okay. Uh, when, when he gets in the cab and he's like, "They're grilling to me about all this shit that I definitely did." Oh God, my mic is on. <laughs> but it's I don't know. It's it's that idea that like to really kind of face if we've done something evil without any any you know stripped of, uh, any rationalization stripped away it's like you know does that does that break a human mind you know if mr yeah. personality is talking about but, like well it, it's yeah. like impossible for us to like do something that we believe is evil if we think that it's outside of that and then it's like 
oh no, what you did is actually evil. You know, shooting up a post office that was evil, blowing somebody up that was evil. I, but that's, uh, I think I he know. makes the mistake of saying people think it's good. I think if you ask yeah. Danny Rollins if he did good or evil, he would just not want to address the question. Yeah. You know, I think people think of themselves as good without thinking of their actions as being good and that they're right. able to compartmentalize those things. Yeah. It's funny that you mentioned Act of, Act of Killing, though, which is not a film by Morris, and it's about the the um, the the genocide in, uh, in what country is it? It's about the genocide in, in, in Indonesia, the killing of, of communists. I guess genocide yeah. is probably not the right word. But what what's fascinating about that movie and why, if you watch Joshua Oppenheimer's other movies, they're not good. They're just, well, no, they're fine. But the reason that movie came about is he wanted to make a movie about the this Indonesian mass killing, right? And he went to the victims and family of the victims and was like, tell me why this happened. And they kept saying, don't talk to us, talk to the killers about yeah. why it happened. And so he went to talk to the killers and sort of the only way he could get them to sort of open up was by framing it and sort of like, we'll explore the past. But it shows part of the genius of Morris is knowing who to talk to about any of this and who yes. to put the camera on and that you're going to get something very uninteresting if you talk to, as you'll see in, in Oppenheimer's other movies about, about Indonesia, very uninteresting stories. The story of being unjustly victimized is a very common, relatable story, but it's not necessarily interesting. If you talk to the people sort of around what's happening or obliquely related to what's happening or an unexpected source, you get much more interesting results. A movie about Danny Rollins is where you just interview Danny Rollins is probably not that interesting. A movie about Sandra London says a lot about Danny Rollins inadvertently while revealing much more about crime and the nature of serial killing. You know, same thing with Gary Greenberg. Ted Kaczynski must be one of the most boring interviews in the world based on his manifesto. <laughs> probably, tells you yeah. nothing about the meaning, the meaning, the cultural meaning of Ted yeah. Kaczynski to talk to Ted Kaczynski. Talking to Gary Greenberg tells you more about it. Talking to to uh, to uh, to Bill Kinsley tells you quite a bit about the world, you know, inadvertently stuff that Bill Kinsley doesn't mean to tell you about it. He's trying to tell one story and you are learning a lot more and finding out other things about it just by who you interview and who you talk to and more unsympathetic people talking to them like Kinsley sometimes generates a more sympathetic story. I think that if I had somebody like me, if you interview me, about the stalker story and I'm clearly on more on Kinsley's side than McIlvain. I don't know that that does Kinsley any favors the way that having Kinsley who's unlikable get to make his own case in a perverse way does himself more favors is that you see the naked truth and are still able to arrive at your own moral conclusions even when faced with the naked truth and again this is what Morris gets in trouble with Bannon and Rumsfeld yeah. And, and McNamara about is he shows the naked unvarnished truth of these people that they have, you know, likable qualities that Rumsfeld is funny is one of the things that fucking kills me in that movie is that he cracks me up a few times and I'm like, I hate you so much, but you're funny. Or the times when Steve Bannon is right. I think that that's what makes people yeah. most furious about American Carnage is he correctly identifies things and exploits them, you know? And that's what's infuriating. But you've gotta, you've gotta show that he's right to make the best case against him. You can't just lie about what he is and expect people to believe you. Yeah. 
<laughs> I mean, there's so much more we can get into about this with, I mean, this is a common problem that a lot of people have where when you're arguing with something, some concept, some other side, people always try to pick the weakest argument. Yeah. But if, you know, if it's true, like, um, I mean, this comes up a lot in religious apologetics where it's like, you know, if you really, if you really believe, then like, you shouldn't be afraid to address some of the difficult questions in this, in this system, you know, in like, I, I don't want to go down this whole other <laughs> but it's, it's very tempting, like this idea that um, I, I, I don't want my belief system to be threatened. So I'm going to pick at the, the weakest part of whatever's challenging it and not acknowledge the weaknesses in my own beliefs um, instead of looking at the strongest arguments against my belief system and considering that maybe I have to, you know, maybe not abandon my belief system, but maybe I have to augment it. Maybe I have to readjust it slightly. I, I feel like this is a very common thing. Yeah. I was thinking for some reason the, the phrase that uh, Murray Richmond uses uh, really stuck in my head where he says, I do believe I'm just not sure what it is exactly that I believe. <laughs> which which I, I don't know that really spoke to me i feel like that myself often where it's like you know i'm not uh you know i'm not uh this is also one of the most morally anathema positions though because yes. i frequently saying i don't know about complex situations makes yep. people very angry right i write about this and i wrote about the white ribbon for the site and I write about nothing makes people angrier than being I'm not sure when faced with a moral quandary right and I think about this joke all the time that was told to me personally by Alan Dershowitz what a great experience this was I've heard him repeat it it's like his go-to joke but it was uh there's two guys arguing right they're having a big argument their friend overhears them and is like you guys calm down we'll ask the rabbi what the solution to the problem is. So make your case to them. They bring the rabbi over and the first guy makes his case and he says, this is what I believe. I need your answer. It's going to end my friendship with this old guy, with this guy I've known forever, one of my best friends. We really need your solution. Here's what I think. And the rabbi listens and says, you know what? I think you're right. And the friend says, well, hold on now. Here's what I think. Here's my position about it. And the rabbi says, you know what? I think you're right. And then the third guy who overheard says, wait, 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 rabbi, they can't both be right. And the rabbi says, you know what? You're right. That's what ends up being my position on a lot of things. David yeah. David Cronenberg says something similar. He describes it as the disease the disease of being Canadian, where you can see everybody's <laughs> perspective. But I well, I think it's a misunderstanding that you can understand. People don't. Un How do I phrase this? People don't realize that you can understand somebody's point of view and not agree with it. Yeah. All the like time. That, that's a completely valid, like, I think, like, I, I've got some weird opinions on things. I know I do, but it's like, I feel like in a free society, you should be able to publish Mein Kampf because people should be able to read it and know that it's like stupid and evil. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I, I feel like people should be able to recognize what's, what's a bad idea and what's wrong with the world and not be afraid of these things that are wrong. You know, we, yeah. we should not be afraid of things that are not the truth. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, people. I don't know if really I explained that well. No, you explained it perfectly. It it reminds me of um, I 
am really, people have a really hard time understanding when I say I don't sit in judgment of anyone. I'm very, very opinionated, but I don't feel like I have the right to judge anybody because I was a very bad person at stretches in my life and growing up and somebody I feel like I, for my behaviors, caused me to forfeit the right to judgment of others. So I am, when I say I'm, it's not that I'm sympathetic. I somehow identify with everybody in this series as humans, except for Annette Bridges Klausing. She's like <laughs> the one that I really, as a human can't identify with. And, and we'll talk later. There's another guy that I really strongly dislike a lot. Um, but I sort of, I don't feel like I have a right to sit in judgment of anybody. And when you say that to people, they're like, what about serial killers? And I'm like, I, I genuinely don't feel like I have a right to sit in judgment of anyone. And that means anybody. So when I'm talking to people, it's not my job to judge anybody. When I'm exploring ideas, when I'm thinking about things, when I'm trying to create my own moral compass, I'll sit in judgment of myself and try and create my own moral compass. But like, I don't do it for anybody else. And I feel like that's what a lot of uh, Morris's movies are doing is when he's asking the question, what separates this person from a criminal? Sandra London, Bill Kinsey, Gary Greenberg. What, what separates Richmond. them from myself also? Yeah. yeah, but that's but he's asking that as in a human way, not in a way in order to properly judge them. He doesn't want to be Michael Stone and figure out who belongs in zone six. He wants to figure out why does zone one resemble zone six so much? Why does the guy who fits in zone two, Thomas McIlvain, do zone six stuff? I think that that's, that's how am I like these people is a question that he's constantly turning over in his head, you know? And as a result, I do. I think this this issue actually uh, leads into the next episode we're going to be talking about quite well because it's this idea of, you know, wh- what would I do if I was in somebody else's position? Yeah. Um, what is heroic behavior? What is heroic behavior? You know, never mind evil behavior. Like, you know, <laughs> I mean, uh, we'll, we'll get into this, but uh, you know, I feel like it, it's sort of. Uh, a challenge to the idea of, well, if I was in that person's shoes, if I was in that position, I would do this. Um, yeah, absolutely. I think that's a good segue. I think this is a good place yeah. to end, and we'll okay. we'll head into to that to the next episode on on heroism. I got to say, when we talk, when you when you talk and answer me. I because I've been watching these documentaries. Just when you start talking, I have a tendency to bark out like Errol Morris things like. Yeah, I noticed. Why? <laughs> Why? I, what I do mean, you part think? of me, um, part of me wishes I, had, I. Well, first of all, that I moved my camera, but then we we had uh, not only recorded the audio but filmed this. Martin, why serial killers? Why why serial killers? That's a stupid question. That's that's lame. (laughs) That's lame. lame. Uh, Have a good night, everybody. And we got two more episodes coming up. I hope you're enjoying this as much as we are enjoying recording it. Uh, I'm actually indifferent to your pleasure to it. I'm loving doing this, Martin. Who cares if anybody listens? Have a good night, everybody. Goodbye.